So we're back, part two, for Mr. Frank, or Francis Albert. Old Blue Eyes. Old Blue Eyes. Always Old Blue Eyes. Old Blue Eyes. What are the other nicknames for him? I just know it's Old Blue Eyes. Chairman of the board? You know, I have not heard that. Chairman of the board? I go Old Blue Eyes just because, you know, I got blue eyes. Yeah. Yeah, Old Blue Eyes. Old Blue Eyes. He is known as Old Blue Eyes, right? He is. Um, uh, By the way, what do you think so far about Frank? I mean, I've always loved Frank. I think right. Frank is just—I mean, uh, we said this in the first episode. And we said we said this before we even recorded this. Like, he's just—he was the originator of what today would be called swagger. Like, this guy yes. just had that—that that essence of just I'm—I don't really give a shit mm-hmm. what you think about me. Right. But I'm gonna create it for myself, and I'm gonna be that guy. And that really just encompassed him as a whole because everybody just looked at him like. That's cool. That guy's cool. Have you ever been? Now this is a loaded question, and look, this is this. Say earmuffs. Yes, no. This is a loaded question for either one of you. I think I know the answer for you, but have you ever been that crazy in love with somebody who you just thought I can't get enough of this person, but they're not right for me? But God, I can't stand myself. Like the love he had for Ava, I can't stand myself. I shouldn't be doing this shit. But I, I, I can't help myself. Not, not for somebody that's not been right for me. Not that I really. Thought. No, no. You've I, never been that crazy about no, someone. I mean, look, look. Have you look, ever been crazy I mean, before, Megs? I think we both had yeah, our we fair both, share. We both had Megs our, has. I have. We, we I definitely, definitely have. We definitely both had. But it, it was never. It was never a love that I never thought was like a good love. You know, like I never thought. But like, when you you're think young, you don't know what that is. No, sometimes. but like, yeah. but like, you know, touching back on. The but look how toxic Ava, that was. Yeah. Have you ever been in a toxic? You've seen. I've been in a toxic relationship before. What but does it wasn't, that look like for you? A toxic relationship. I mean, that was more of like just forcing it to happen and just That's creating true. it to happen I and mean, just kind of convincing myself to like trying to get out of a spot in a dark time that I was at. But I don't. Were think you that, more into her? Or was she more into you? This one? No. 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 Uh-oh. The toxic relationship. You don't have a toxic relationship with Megan. No. No. Basil is starting to get now he's starting <laughs> to tell the truth uh, no um, no um you know I don't know I think it was more of have you ever been more into someone than they are into you because that's to me where toxicity starts Frank was more into Ava than Ava was more so into she him had the control God, you know she what? had more of the control I think for me it's always been like I always go to see like if there's somebody that I'm really into or that I was really into like the interest wasn't He's there. He's lucky. If the interest was there, I would just be done. Like really? I, I'm the type of person. You didn't stick around. Not, not, and not to say that I wouldn't try. Like, and try to make it work. It was just like, if I got that feeling, like, this person just does not like me the same way. Like, I'm fucking out. Like, I just, oh, I'm done. Wow. And it's and and call it a gift, call it a curse. I mean, like, there's some people that have their heart just sunk into some person. Right. Like Frank had an Ava. Ava was just like. 
that was his person. And like, we'll get into it more. Like I mm-hmm. did in your notes, you even brought up, it was like, even after they got, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but then when they got divorced, it was, he would always talk in such a high manner about mm-hmm. my ex-wife is so beautiful. Like mm-hmm. she was so great. Da, 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 da. I think for me, it was more so when I was pursuing a girl, Mm-hmm. It was like if there was there was no give back. It was just like I'm not gonna waste my you'd time. You lose you lose interest. You get I bored. Mean, yeah, I mean, look, there's guys that talk about the chase. Like, right, the chase is always something. Like, there's always something. Like, but once I got the hint, it was like it's not gonna work. Like, I'm not gonna pursue something, and I'm not gonna force something onto somebody that doesn't that they don't really want. Anyways, there, there's no point because it'll always be one sided. And I've always been that way. Mm-hmm. Whether it's relationship, whether it's business whether it's friendship, whatever it is, mm-hmm. I've always been that. So for me, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, call it, but like, you know, you, I mean, call it a, call it a gift, call it a curse, whatever you want to call it. It was just, that's just how I am. I mean, but Frank, I mean, look, I mean, Frank and Ava was like, Ava was his oh, gal. That, like, was, that was, oh his, my God. That was his. It's a kryptonite for him. Yes. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Megs? Have you ever been more into someone than they have been? Oh yeah. Me? Yeah. It happens. Yeah. It's like hell. Like you can, I can feel how he must have felt. Like it's hell. Yeah. Um, I don't, I've never tried to kill myself over anybody. You know, going to suicide hotline kids. That's if you, crazy. <laughs> that's, I, I did I'm not going to be taking no pills over no, your ass no, or no. anything like that. No, but you do feel in a way. sunken place. Of course. Not like very, that. It's, it's, it is a kind of, it is a depression in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I mean, crazy. I think, I think, I mean, I, I did not know that part about Frank, you know, going that deep and that dark, but mm-hmm. I mean, when you love hard, I mean, you love hard. Oh yeah, he did. You he love loved hard. her. It's, there's, there's nothing like, all, like, it's just, you're there. So I, I well, that's kind of karma. Because mm. he was so shitty to Ooh. Nancy. You know what? Ooh. Good, good point. Good Ooh. point. Here we go. That's true. Well, no, I'm just thinking about Here it. You know, I should mean, think, you know what? That's a good point. That's a very good point. Like, I don't know. That's because he, yes. I mean, it makes. I mean, it's, you're right. I mean, like. You're right. It's like, look, karma's a fucking bitch. Like, yeah. I mean, he, he, look. Yeah. He was an ass. He was an ass to Nancy, he yeah. He openly was to her. Yeah. So yeah. maybe. So he kind of got, he got, got it he and more. Yeah, and more. You know what I mean? So it was during this time, this is, um, so like I said, Ava went off to make Magumbo with Clark Gable, and Frank tagged along because he had no career. His career was in the tanker. And it was during this time that he became obsessed and started lobbying for the part, the role of Maggio in From Here to Eternity. However, Frank had no clout by this time, and he called Harry Cohn, the head of Columbia Pictures, who, made, who were making the film, and Harry did not want Frank for the part, and he told him, you're a singer, you know. Harry wanted Eli Wallach for the role, and Eli Wallach would pay uh, in The Godfather, I think, three. But Eli Wallach had a story career. People should go watch him. He's in the Spaghetti Westerns with um, Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just a great actor, and he was in Eli Ilya Kazan's movies, too. So before they left for Africa, on Frank's behalf, Ava called Harry, and she also met with Harry's wife, Joan, to ask for help in getting, you know, Frank, getting Harry to give Frank a screen test, because he wouldn't even give him a screen test at first. Finally, you know, when they're in Africa, uh, Frank receives a, um, 
he receives a uh, cable from in, from Columbia saying, come back to Hollywood to test for from here to eternity. So Ava was glad that Frank left during this time, kids, because she was pregnant, and she used his absence to fly to London to get an abortion. Holy shit. Yeah, they argued constantly, and she was just sick of the sick of arguing with him, and she just knew she didn't want to have no kid. And there's documentation that she flew there with the cameraman's wife who went with her to London. She had a good excuse. And I want to say at the very beginning of Magumbo, this is a good story, she didn't get along with the director, John Ford, who was like Grace of Wrath. He's huge. He's amazing. A director. At first, they didn't get along, and John Ford could be grumpy. And so, when it just so happens when they weren't getting along, the British governor and his wife were um, visiting the set down in Africa. And John Ford asked Ava, "Why don't you tell the governor what you see in this 120-pound runt you're married to, Ava? Trying to be cute, right?" So Ava replied, "Well, John." There's only 10 pounds of Frank, but there's 110 pounds of cock. And he wanted to strangle her, of course, but the governor and the wife laughed their asses off, and I thought that was a great story, so I had to tell it. Isn't that brilliant? That was a great comeback. He never asked her no shit like that again. Right? <laughs> he left her alone, but that was a brilliant comeback. And she might have been right, obviously, because they were still together. But Eli Wallach turned down the role, so Frank got the role. It's actually because of Ava that he got, Ava and Harry Cohn's wife, that he got the role. But, you know, for all of the Godfather movie enthusiasts, when the Godfather book came out and the movie was released, people assumed, because of all his mob friendships, that Frank received mobster help in getting that role. We don't know, possibly. In fact, Sinatra sued the BBC when they wrote about it, you know, because this was his role. Kind of like, remember Johnny Fontaine? And he's sitting there telling the Godfather, I got to have that role. Um, he won the lawsuit and received a retraction from the BBC later on, way long, years later. However, the suspicion remained because the mob was involved with a lot with Hollywood. Even I don't know if it might be still today through the Teamsters and the transportation for anybody who doesn't know. The mob was heavily involved in Hollywood. It might still be today. Yeah. What do you think? Oh, for, come on. Yeah. There's smoke, where, there's smoke, there's fire. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So shooting began on, on uh, From Here to Eternity in Hollywood on March 2nd. You should fill it up more than that. No, no, no. Keep it cold. Okay, good. All right, that's the truth. Cold and a little diluted. That's perfect. So, shooting began in Hollywood on March 2nd, 1953, and moved to Hawaii for the exterior scenes at uh, the Army Barracks. And Frank was humbled to be working with such accomplished actors as Montgomery Clift, who is one of my favorite actors ever. And Burt Lancaster, Deborah Carr. Do you know who these people are? Donna Reed. Do you know who Donna Reed is? Wasn't she in It's a Wonderful Life? I'll look it up. I think she was. Stats department. Yeah, there she goes. She's doing it. And so uh, afterwards, he and Monty would grab... Monty Cliff, people need to go watch his films, like A Place in the Sun. He's inspired everybody from uh, Leo DiCaprio. She was Donna Reed, right? She was the wife of Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life. Um, but Monty Clift is the actor of actors along up there with Marlon Brando. So for all you kids, if you love Leo DiCaprio or whatever, they all cite Montgomery Clift. 
his story is heartbreaking, but whatever. It's another rock of bias for another time. But anyway, he and Monty would grab their bottles and go to Frank's room where he would try to call Ava in Nairobi, Africa, because she was still doing Magumbo. And international calls took hours in those days, not like cell phone and Marco Polo and all that stuff. And they drank as they waited, so they both would get drunk. One night during the course of the filming, Frank, here we go, with his suicidal ass, he became so depressed by Ava's rejection that he threatened suicide, and Monty talked him out of it. You know what? I got a little hot take about Frank Sinatra. He was, the, he was not only the original rock star, he was the original emo. <laughs> What's emo? Oh. For all the kids out there. I, but, no, but yeah, we're, he we're, was... I'm looking over his He was melodramatic as but, fuck. Yeah, that, that has nothing to do with that. Yeah, he was being, melodramatic no, as fuck. The, he wasn't pulling any of that no, shit earlier with... <laughs> that's what's her With Nancy. No, no, yeah, he wasn't her. doing that with Nancy. And then this one, he acted a fool. No, it's because of the relationship he's in. He was... Um, me- but don't you think he was a little melodramatic? Oh, my God, he's so dramatic. Oh, he's very... Get I over mean, yourself. Get your shit together. The guy man's in love, okay? Relax. Don't tell the guy to get over himself. He's he's upset. He's mad. He's mad. He's he Whoa, wants to, he's he made wants, that clear. He wants to hurt himself. Wow, Megan just you know like she oh, was just poor guy you know what? She's like yeah yeah just shipping down wherever he's. I dead. know right. She you know what she had some control. You got to give it to Ava. She must have been that good. That good. She's Frank. She's Frank. Yeah, and I think it, no, well, no, That's no. What it was. You know what? He didn't have diamonds on his thing. She had diamonds on her thing. You know because he was sprung the fuck out. Yeah, he met his match. He met, he his, met his match. match. You know, he was you sprung. You said she was unattainable. Yeah, I think it was that way in their marriage too. She was because so she didn't why, give a shit. Yeah, she was the original honey badger for, him, for him. him. She was the honey badger. She didn't give a fuck. She knew she was shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Frank acted as though. He was after, from here to eternity, he was like, you know what? After this, we're going to live happily ever after. I'm going to go see my girl. And he phoned her in London. By this time, she was filming another film for MGM to say that he would be joining her in a few days, right? So he wanted wanted her to accompany him on singing engagements throughout Europe. His voice was back. He was feeling good. He had been in the role of a lifetime. And he promised her, he's like, look, this is going to be our second honeymoon. You and me, me and you. And she was like, you know what? I love you too, me and you. It's all that. Unfortunately, the second honeymoon just turned out to be a disaster because they argued all the damn time. It was nonsense. It was the press was there following them. And after seeing a photograph of Frank in the newspapers dressed as a clown in a Halloween party with two little showgirls at the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas, she called her lawyer. And before she filed, her lawyer set up a meeting with Frank, said, just set up a meeting with the guy and you guys see if you can get back together. But Frank, he was already starting to feel his oats and because he was coming back, you know, his voice was back. He canceled at the last minute. And on October 29th, Ava's studio MGM announced that the marriage was over, and he was heartbroken. He, but he caused that shit. You know what I mean? He didn't want to make it work. But anyway, after leaving Columbia Records, oh, I read somewhere, though, he was a little resentful at the fact that she was setting up this meeting the way she was. So he might have had a clue what was going on. You know uh, what I mean? Yeah, I mean, like... The, so he was a little resentful that, she, guy, that she could tell him to jump, and he's like, I'm, I'm Frank Sinatra. Well, he's probably a little heartbroken. He goes, I'm he's not going to have your fucking attorney in my fucking meeting. That's true. And you're not going to show true. up and you're gonna say, true. hey, Ava you wants to tell that. me what to do. Fuck off. Yeah. You know, we can meet We can meet one-on-one if you don't want to do it that way. And then, right. obviously, she goes through the studio. 
Yeah, to announce to announce, yeah, that's not good. Yeah, okay. but, you know, the studios owned you back then, but they were like, screw it. So after leaving Columbia Records in 1952, Frank signed a contract with Capitol Records, uh, provided that Frank forfeit in advance and pay all of his own studio costs. So the heartbroken Frank suffered over Ava, and it seeped into his music, and it gave it new poignancy and and to songs of loss and loneliness. And this is where that era of really the true, authentic Frank Sinatra comes into play. Uh, like, um, like one of his favorite singers, Billie Holiday. Although Frank Sinatra and Billie Holiday grew up in different circumstances, they were each other's greatest fans and influences. Frank first saw Billy perform in the late 1930s and became an instant devotee. In 1944, Holiday told columnist Earl Wilson that she'd offered Sinatra advice on his singing. I told him certain notes at the end he could bend, bending those notes. That's all I helped Frankie with. Billy had no formal training, however. Her unique vocal style made her one of the most influential singers of all time. Beset by alcohol and drug problems, Billy's cabaret license was revoked in 1947, which blocked her ability to perform in nightclubs and concert venues. In 1959, at the age of 44, Billy died of liver and heart disease, alone in a small hospital room with only 70 cents to her name. After her death, Frank Sinatra, a longtime admirer of Billy, remarked that with few exceptions, every major pop singer in the US during her generation has been touched in some way by her genius. It is Billie Holiday who was, and still remains, the greatest single musical influence on me. Reportedly, Sinatra locked himself away in his penthouse for two days and wept for Billie while drinking and playing her records. He poured out his feelings and made, made his ballads very soulful and anthems of regret and heartbreak. And the Capitol Records, which people can go listen to now, from 1953 to 1961, were very fruitful years for him. Uh, he worked with a talented arranger named Nelson Riddle. And their fruitful partnership relaunched Frank's career and gave him his first runaway hit in years called I've Got the World on a String. So there you go, kids, listen to that. And Nelson said later on, years later, that working with Frank was always a challenge. He said there were times when the going got rough, and he was a relax. He said he wasn't relaxed like Nat King Cole, and um, he was a perfectionist who drove himself and everybody around him relentlessly. And he says you always appreciate approached him with a feeling of uneasiness, not only because he was demanding and unpredictable, but because his reactions were violent. So, but all these tensions disappeared if you came through for him. He said, I suppose over our eight years of partnership at uh, Capitol, he threw out an average of about one arrangement a year, which is not bad. He said, but there'd never be anger. After the first time, though, he'd just say, let's just skip that one. You know, let's just do another one and go straight to the next one. But he never gave out compliments either. If he said nothing, that meant he was pleased. And he just isn't built to give out compliments, and I never expected him. He expects your best and just that. He's an instinctive musician, and they worked together off and on until 1978 for a total of 25 years. And there, he said that after that, there wasn't much for me to do anymore. He said, I never really had an argument with him, but then I don't argue. He said, I, told my, I held my temper too long, but that's why I would work with Frank, I guess. He's very tough. Um, from what I also read, he would just move him out of the way if he didn't like what he was doing. And just said, let me, let me do the orchestra. Let me do it. But... Brooding over Frank, Frank 
uh, moving over Ava, I'm sorry. That's the margarita. Ava. <laughs> Frank did everything he could to get her back uh, and change her mind, but and he called her repeatedly, sent all of her records, all of his records to him, to her, and Ava was enjoying a love affair with a Spanish bullfighter who became one of the biggest bullfighters ever, which is Luis Miguel Dominguez. I don't know how to say the last name. Um, but Abel filed for divorce. You want to say it? Mm-mm. Okay. So Abel filed for divorce in 1954. It was finalized in 1957. And even after divorce, he still kept talking about his beautiful ex-wife, as you were talking about earlier, Christian. And while making movies, he kept her picture taped to his dressing room mirror and told anyone who asked, I know we could have worked it out, he said. And on March 25th, 1954, he won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for From Here to Eternity. It became a huge runaway hit. And he took his 13-year-old daughter, Nancy, and 10-year-old son, Frankie Jr., and his success in From Here to Eternity brought him the kind of work that had eluded him for many years. And financially, he was back on top. He was approved for the Nevada State Gambling License and bought 2% of the Sands Hotel, which grew to 9% ownership. And the 7% increase in ownership was a gift from Vincent Jimmy Blue Eyes due to his good relationship with the mafia. And for the next 13 years, he would reign supreme at the Sands, eventually becoming vice president of the corporation and earning over $100,000 a week when he performed. He got $3,000 a night to gamble with during those heyday. And he gambled... You know, with the money, would run through it in like 30 minutes, and then they would just give him more, extend the credit, and it would frequently allow him to play no-limit games. And sometimes they even ignored his markers. Uh, they built a three-bedroom suite on the ground floor for him because he hated heights, just so you know. He didn't like heights. Huh. Yeah, he was afraid of heights. And they installed a private swimming pool for him, protected by a stone wall. Later, he insisted that they put in a health club with a sauna and a steam bath as well, They ordered the Italian breads and prosciutto and provolone that he loved flown in from New York. And if a room service waiter brought him a hamburger that was too well done, there was a good chance it would be thrown against the wall and the chef fired. If he didn't like the color of a telephone, he tore it out of the wall. The color of the telephone? Yeah. Bellboys were kept on duty just to take care of his early morning request for pizza or blueberry pie. So Frank made movies at the Sands, recorded albums. We heard live at the Sands, one of them from uh, Quincy Jones arranging it. Mm-hmm. He sponsored boxing matches there through glamorous opening night parties. And over the years, prostitutes became a staple in uh, Frank's life, not just in Las Vegas. So in 1954 and 1955, Frank made more movies than any other, Holly- any other star in Hollywood. And Frank wanted the role of Terry Malloy on, on the waterfront. Marlon Brando got the part, and smarting over losing the role to Brando, an actor he despised, he called Brando Mumbles. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I mean, anybody thinks about Marlon Brando. You don't call him Mumbles. By the way, do you know what's the... the godfather. It's the godfather. Oh, my God, that's right. He would become the godfather. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're talking about it now, but yeah, Marlon Brando was one of the Damn. iconic Hollywood stars, like... Well, he hated he Elvis, was, he, too. He just hated well, everyone he, else. He, he but, but, but he sang with Elvis. He hated Elvis, but he sang with Elvis. Yeah, that one time for that TV special. Mm-hmm. But Marlon Brando, is is kind of ironic how this stuff comes back around, that Marlon Brando would play the godfather. Do you guys know what the famous line from On the Waterfront is? I do not. Mm-mm. You do know. 
You think you don't know, but you know. What is it? I could have been a contender. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Just saying. And although Frank dated other women, his secret relationship with Lauren Bacall was being whispered about among their friends. So here's the key that most people don't notice. So Frank worshipped the 56-year-old at this time, 56-year-old actor, Bogey, Humphrey Bogart, he thought he was an artist, which he was. Humphrey Bogart was Humphrey Bogart, and Lauren Bacall was his wife. And Bogey and his wife formed a, formed a group known as the Homby Hills Rat Pack. In the 1950s, the Homby Hills Rat Pack, a name coined by Lauren Bacall, was a group of friends who met at the Los Angeles home of Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Some of the original members of the Homby Hills Rat Pack were Humphrey Bogart, the leader, Lauren Bacall, Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, David Niven, Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy, and Cary Grant. Visiting members included Ava Gardner, Nat King Cole, Elizabeth Taylor, Lena Horne, and Janet Lee. After Bogart's death and by the 1960s, the name was shortened to Rat Pack and used by the press and the general public to refer to a later variation of the group that featured Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, and Joey Bishop. They appeared together on stage in Las Vegas and in films like Ocean Eleven and Robin and the Seven Hoods. Sinatra, Martin, and Davis were regarded as the group's lead members. They sold out almost all of the Las Vegas appearances, and people would come pouring into Las Vegas sometimes, sleeping in cars and hotel lobbies, when they could not find rooms, just to be part of the Rat Pack entertainment experience. Which was dedicated to drinking, laughing, staying up late, and not caring about public opinion. By the way, Frank ended up moving to Homby Hills, by the way. Mm. I think Nancy lived there, and Brad Gray ended up buying up Frank Sinatra's house. That's the one oh, that he had yeah. when he died. He tore it all down. Of course, but he, he it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but he owned that huge lot. It was like an acre or so. It's still the, one of the biggest lots down in Homby Hills. Um, but this is where the name Rat Pack started from. It started, it originated from Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall Which kids. Which is crazy because everybody thinks, when they think of Rat Pack, they think the of 1960s. 11, yeah. Like no, it was up. started with Bogey. Bogey was the original Rat Packer and him and Lauren Bacall, they say that Lauren called it a Rat Pack. So it's funny that you say this yeah. because it's, it's when I was reading your notes, when yeah. you sent them over to us, mm-hmm. it was, I was reading it because I... I'll, I'll be completely honest. I didn't know about the Homely Hills uh, Rat, Rat Pack. Pack. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about it. You always Rat. think you think Sammy Davis Jr., you think Team Martin, you think right. Joey Bishop, you think those guys. Mm-hmm. That's the Rat Pack. That's the Vegas Rat Pack. Right. But these guys were They organized. were the Vegas Rat well, Pack. they were. But this is the Homely Hills. Yeah, this is the, this this is the, is the original. original. But these guys were organized. Yeah. I mean, like, shit. I mean, like, they, I mean, they had, like, meetings. They had, yes. like, they had, like, positions. A party, yeah. You're right, because Frank was the pack master. Judy Garland was the first vice president. And Sid Luft, her husband, uh, was the cage master. I don't know what that means, cage master. See, every That's time I think of cage master, I just think of Vegas when I'm just begging for more money. It's just like, yeah. like No, I think bucks, of cage bucks. like a girl in a cage or someone yeah. in a cage. That's what I was thinking. I just think, of the, I just think like, go to the cage. Turn your money in or beg for more. Do you know who Swifty Lazar was? I don't. He was the recording secretary. Swifty Lazar was one of the ones who had the original Oscar parties. Like you wanted to go to Swifty Lazar's 
Oscar party. Before the Vanity Fair Oscar parties, Swifty Lazar was the man. He was an agent. He was powerful in Hollywood for many, many years. In fact, the picture of Michael Jackson and Madonna, remember the party that they went? They went to a party together. Madonna had that white dress on, and that was Swifty's party. And it was at um, Wolfgang Puck's uh, restaurant. Wolfgang Park used to host through Swifty, it was actually Swifty before Wolfgang, but he was the man who had these parties. He was so powerful in Hollywood. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, Go like, look him up. He had these big glasses on. Oh, Swifty Lazar. I know, I know who you're yeah. talking about. Then. Yeah, now that's you all know, you right? Had to say. That's the all big you glasses. Yep. Yeah. So um, he was recording secretary. Bogey was in charge of the Rat Pack uh, PR because he was great with uninhibited quotes and to the press, and the press loved him. Unlike Frank, they hated Frank, and Frank hated them, and he loved them. So. On February 29, 1956, sadly, Humphrey Bogart was diagnosed. You want to say something? No, she's showing There he is, those big glasses. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I know. Swifty Lazar. Look him I, up. I, as soon as you said big glasses, I can know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. He's like, big. Goofy-looking mother guy. Yeah, and that dude lived for a long-ass time. I don't know when he <laughs> died. When did he die? When did he die? When did he die, man? Staff department. Yeah. <laughs> Staff department. That's it. Um, so, Humphrey Bogart. 1993. What? See? And Where so, was he born, though? 1907. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, see, he was the one who had those famous Oscar parties. But anyway, uh, Swift, uh, Humphrey Bogart in February 1956 was diagnosed as having throat cancer, and the doctors operated too late. Bogey had less than a year to live. Frank visited him regularly when he was in town. And on January, 1950, January 14th, 1957, Humphrey Bogart died three weeks after his 57th birthday. And Frank was performing in New York at the Copacabana when he got the news. He canceled. That was the second time. Remember, the first time is when he shot up the mattress. But anyway, he canceled his next two appearances, telling his agents, I can't go on. I wouldn't be coherent. And he still couldn't bring himself to, to go to the funeral. And the rest of the Bogart rat pack was there, including Swifty. So here we go told you that it was kind of whispered about when when Humphrey got really sick Bogart and Lauren was having this secret little affair and after he died they were seen out in public together and you know he escorted her to premieres dinner party if you know Lauren Bacall in her early days she was beautiful she was way younger than Humphrey Bogart she was younger than Frank Sinatra I think at this time she was in her 20s early 30s if that and she fell deeply in love with Frank Sinatra, and she wanted to get married. Frank wavered until, and he was like, I don't know. In fact, he wanted out at some time. So on the evening of March 11, 1958, he finally proposed on March 11, 1958, um, 14 months after Bogart's death. Frank left the next day for Miami, and Swifty took uh, Bacall to the theater. During intermission, a com- columnist asked her if she and Frank were going to get married, and she's like, why don't you telephone Frank in Florida, is what she said. And then she admitted the truth, which Swiftly confirmed minutes later, because that's what he do. Later that night, she saw the headlines on the early edition of the morning paper, Sinatra to marry Bacall. Not knowing how he would react, Bacall phoned Frank in Miami to tell him what had happened. He didn't call her back for days. This is where it doesn't go good. When he did, he says, why'd you do it? 
You know, I haven't been able to leave my room for days, and the press are everywhere. We'll have to lay low for a while and not see each other for a while. That was the last time Lauren spoke to him for six years. He didn't speak to her again for six years. That's, I'm telling you, man. It's just like when you're done, you're done. But damn, that's yeah, cold. That's, that's, that's not fucking cold. She said she was devastated. Well, she shit. said, shut your mouth. Don't say shit. She said she like felt that. as rejected as hell. She rejected publicly. She said you rejected publicly. When he could at least say, you know what? I just don't think this was gonna work out. Oh, he didn't yeah. have to not speak to the woman for six years. And they said even when he spoke about it six years later, he was still kind of mad about it. He grudge, clearly. Damn. Okay. God, you know, he needs to quit. He anyway. needs to go lay on the couch. <laughs> he should go lay on the couch, <laughs> as Annette would say. Damn. So in 1957, he signed a three-year contract with ABC for $3 million in cash, plus a share of the profits. What is that, that today? Uh, oh shoot! I should look that up I mean, because that, I put it. Let's just let's just spitball. Let's just throw some things out there. I'm gonna I say, say nine million. I say even more than that. Yeah, Meg, look it up okay. while we're doing. Say what would so it? That's, and that's 1957. So you so look it up. Barman. How much is? Yeah. So the network gave him complete artistic control. Big mistake. His weekly series bombed and was canceled because he hated to rehearse. And later on, I would say they called him. Uh, one take Charlie. He was such a jerk about it. He he really gave, put the director through the ringer and was just crazy about it. He, so he dashed off 11 shows in 15 days. And you know being in the business, you can't dash off no damn uh, 11 oh. shows in 15 days. He sailed through with little attention to detail. He made a stand-in, Dave White, do the rehearsing while he simply jumped in at the last minute to do the filming. It, it bombed. And he became known, like I said, as one take Charlie. Yet his attitude toward work, especially his unwillingness to rehearse, irritated people in Hollywood. Billy Wilder, a good friend of Frank's, refused to work with him, saying, I'm afraid he would run after the first take and go off with some girl. So Rat Pack Number 2 started around this time, and he formed it after Bogey's death, and it consisted of Dean Martin. Mm -hmm. Joey Bishop and... uh, Yep. Name uh, the other one. Sammy Davis Jr. and... um, Yep. Keep going. His main, the main one. You said it earlier. Begins with a D. I've had a lot of our sponsorship tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Begins with a D. Basil Hayden's. 27 million? 27 million. Wow. Wait, they paid a 27 million up front? Yeah. That's what this inflation calculation. No, no, it begins with a D. D Martin. Yeah, there you go. I said D Martin. Did you? I said D Martin. Okay, sorry. And Shirley MacLaine. Was a part of it too. People don't know yeah, that. Joy Bishop, Dean Martin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I gotta bring this out. You know what it is. So I gotta bring this out. As I'm driving home. Uh, yeah, you bring it. You're, dri- you're driving home and to the dinner. Yeah, How about turned, that? This turned into the uh, the voice podcast of the music drunk history over there. <laughs> Good. And it was so. You should have another another glass. So it was dedicated to drinking as bogies. Humphrey Bogart's principle for the first Rat Pack, which became the principle for the second. Rat Pack was that the whole world was three drinks behind and it was time to catch up, which mm-hmm. is like with you. Yeah. It goes back to the thing is like anybody exactly. who doesn't drink, the best they're going to feel yes. all day is when they wake up. Exactly. Exactly. Because he felt like shit when he woke up. Right but the, exactly. But this is getting good because in uh, Frank's Rat Pack, the personal homage was all to Frank. Like, he was their leader, and it was all important. And he was addressed as the Pope, the General, and El Dago. Keep that 
El Dago. Keep that, keep that name, man, because you're going to need that later. So the new Rat Pack developed its own vocabulary. And do you know what women were called? You don't, you're not in this. Yeah, I don't have you in this notes. Broads. 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 And, um, and then I have some other ones that I thought was cool. So if they said she's a real barn burner, do you think that's good or bad when they're good. talking about a woman? There you go. Look, you know. And uh, if you were talking about sex, do you know what the word is, especially with a woman? Sexual nature. Indulging in something with a woman. It was called hey, hey. <laughs> and then oh, we're gonna use death. that later. Hey, 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 I'm, hey, just, I'm just gonna hey at you, man. Yeah, right. that's right. Hey, hey. And then uh, <laughs> the death was considered the big casino. The big casino. Oh, I've heard that. This is a weird one. They considered a male or female genitalia as bird. Like, how's your bird? What? Yes, that just this ridiculousness. How's your bird? You don't say that now. No. <laughs> Packer, I mean, you talk about your Packer. Yeah, but see now it's, it's a bird. bird. It's both. I mean, a more. bird. How's your bird? Yes. Okay. I mean, broad. Broad was meant good. So, um, oh, so if you're talking about a woman who's messed up and she's a loser, she's mishmash. Mm. Mishmash. Mishmash. Uh, a cry of surprise to no one in particular when a beautiful woman is seen as hello. You know what I want to say that is my friend Tanya, her dad, whenever he goes hello, hello. So that was kind of the same thing I think from there. Dean Martin's favorite nickname for everyone, including like a lifelong friend or a bellhop, was Pally. Pally. Hey Pally, cuckoo. You know what that is, cuckoo. Cray cray, right? Mm-hmm. And. Uh, Ooh, a derogatory term for a doctor is croaker. <laughs> so if you're talking about, don't go to him, he's a croaker. <laughs> and ring-a-ding-ding is a term of approval. Ring-a-ding-ding broad. some of his songs. A lot of those guys did. Ring-a-ding-ding. Ring-a-ding-ding. So on the subject of children, Frank was a softie, and he was a doting dad. Um, like he got Nancy a mink coat for her 16th birthday. That's a little too much to get a 16-year-old. But we're talking about Shit, Frank Sinatra. I mean, have you seen any? Would of you these get your artists? daughter a pink Thunderbird? Or will you? A will BMW. you get your daughter? A pink, a pink BMW. Oh shit, that's right. I forgot. Sorry. We're, we're on the a cars pink now. We're BMW. Gonna, we're, we'll put that to the side. Yes. Okay. And we'll cut that out. We'll cut that out. <laughs> cut that out. You're gonna get her a why? You get her a pink BMW. Uh, hey? Oh, hell no. They don't make that color. <laughs> I ain't put no. They might. A pink Cadillac. What about a pink Cadillac like what uh, Aretha Franklin talks about? Anyway, never mind. <laughs> so much of, much of Frank's minutia of fathering, though, fell to George Jacobs, remember that name, and to his secretary, Gloria, who remembered all their birthdays and shot for their presents and called them on a regular basis. That happens even today as for personal assistance, by the way. So Frank was a Democrat who became great friends with Jack Kennedy, and he knew Jack's father, Joseph, as we know, possibly from those RKO days. And he really did a lot of singing and benefits for Jax when he was um, running for president. And they had all known each other from the 1950s. So among the women which Frank introduced to Jack Kennedy, and people can look this up, was uh, 25-year-old brunette Judith Campbell Exner, with whom Frank had a brief affair. And the affair ended when she refused to participate in one of his kinky sexual parties. Uh, he introduced her. By the way, I read somewhere it was like he was in bed with a, a, 
black girl. And he's like, come on, get up, get up in here. You know, hook it up. And she's like, ah, nah, that's okay. And he was like, come on, swing a little. And she said no. So, But he introduced her to Jack, so I'm sure she did a lot of stuff when it comes to Jack Kennedy. But anyway, <laughs> he introduced her to Jack and, uh, you know, and provided his own suite for their room service lunch, which we know that would, would quotes. The lunch would launch a two-year affair that would include a two twice-a-day phone call and romantic interludes all over the U.S., including Jack's Georgetown home when Jackie was out of the house. And when Kennedy was elected president, Frank and Peter Lawford spent 13 days planning an inaugural gala to honor the president-elect the night before swearing-in. And this invitation only show for 10,000 people they paid $100 a piece for seats and $10,000 for boxes would raise over $1 million to cover the Democrats' uh, campaign deficit. He was no joke. So returning home after the inaugural and inauguration festivities, Frank was agitated and had a bone to pick with Desi Arnaz. So as president of Desi Lou, which we know I love Lucy, right? Of course. Yes. Desi, which people don't know, he produced I Love Lucy, and he started the oh, Desi yeah. Lucy. Yeah, he was brilliant. You know that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that guy was, I mean. He was Sunday, brilliant. I mean, he was brilliant, but he was also, I mean, he was in the forefront of just like. Lucy. Yes, he was. Of TV production? Mm-hmm. Yes, he was. He started the multi-camera production yeah. of it all. I mean, yeah. that's, that's where I Love Lucy became Big. huge. Wow. Yeah, that's Huge. true. I didn't even I put see, that in here. So I saw that, and I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, this guy, because, like, you know, I'm going through your notes. I'm like, yeah. Frank is That's what I love. You go through my I notes, damn. I this shit. I, I was love like, it. Oh, Frank is a bad motherfucker. He I go, is. Frank was king of swag. And I go, Frank, Frank was just king of swag. This guy was just... Incredible. Wait till you get mean. to this story. Wait till you get... Oh, mean is not going... Here mean. we go. You ready for the next story? Let's go. Drop it on me. So Desi was responsible for developing The Untouchables, a popular weekly television show, which became a movie later on with Kevin Costner and Robert De Niro playing Al Capone, right? And so Elliot Ness is battled Chicago mobs in the days of Al Capone when Sam Giacana was Capone's driver. I didn't know that. The Chicago names being mentioned on the series made Giancana mad, who got it in his head to have Desi killed. So in April... After an evening of drinking in Palm Springs, Frank says, you know what, I'm going to take care of Desi Arnaz. So Frank and his friends drove down to Indian Wells. Oh, God, here we go. That's right. Megs, get closer to the mic because this is going to get good. So he went down to the Indian Wells Country Club to wait for Desi Arnaz, who lived down in that area, who normally came to that restaurant. Uh, so minutes later, as expected, Desi walked in, flanked by two huge Italian bodyguards, each one standing well over six feet, weighing over 300 pounds. And thinking that Frank was there to have a good time, Desi walked over and was like, hey, El Diago, how you doing, El Diago, or whatever he says to him. And with a tight jaw, Frank introduced him to his group. And then Frank turned to Desi and told him what him and some of his influential Italian friends thought about the show making the Italians gangsters. And so Desi says, what do you want me to do? Make them all Jews? And then he told Frank that he wasn't afraid of his friends, and I put that in air quotes. Uh, and the argument took off from there. Frank admitted that he'd never seen The Untouchable, but he said he knew what he was talking about because I always know what I'm talking about. I'm Frank. And uh, 
Desi laughed and said, oh, yeah, well, I remember when you couldn't get a job. So why don't you forget all this bullshit and just have your drinks and enjoy yourself? Stop getting your nose in where it doesn't belong, you and your so-called friends. So at 4 a.m., Frank and all of his friends went back to his composer friend Jimmy's house. And we're going to call him for the rest of the show. We're going to call him Composer Jimmy, which is Jimmy Van Housen. He's a big-time composer. So Composer Jimmy, they went back to Composer Jimmy's house, and Frank felt humiliated about backing down on Desi, Desi Arnaz's threats, that when he walked into Jimmy's den, he grabbed a carving knife and slashed a large Norman Rockwell canvas to threads. Now, let's just put this in context. Norman Rockwell is Norman Rockwell, and it's expensive even then because he's, right yes, he's the greatest one of the greatest artists ever. And that, that what he slashed through, was a, a portrait of Jimmy, composer Jimmy, because Jimmy was that big, and he slashed through the knife, slashed through that composer, and then he yelled at Jimmy and said, if you try to fix that or put it back, I will come and blow the fucking wall off, he said. And composer Jimmy didn't say one word. And Norman Rockwell had painted that portrait specifically for Jimmy. And it was a one-of-a-kind. So to make amends, he sent Jimmy an expensive Japanese print, and Jimmy accepted it. Now, I'd be fucking pissed. I ain't going to lie. I just got to bring I mean, that I just got to bring that up. I mean, if, It's going to be some hell to I pay. Mean, if you're composing Jimmy, and you're that big of a badass, you have Norman Rockwell. What would you do if Norman Rockwell did a, a, a portrait of you, and then some fool, because he's got his feelings, he caught up in his feelings, as Drake would say, he's in his feelings, and then he comes and take a I knife. Like a tie-in. I like yes. the tie-in. Yes. Boom. We're, we're, Boom. Wait, we're back. We're Boom. back, baby. Ring a ding ding. 2018. Ring a ding ding. What would you do to that person? Uh, and he says, you know what? Christian, me. if you replace it, I'm going to fucking come and blow your fucking wall. You and Megan's wall off. So, Look, at, Megan's already looking pissed. So, I mean, I'm looking at this uh, this way. I'm going to ask you are, next, Megan. Both Jimmy and, and Frankie are, are good friends. Yes. And I've, I've dealt with my So what if Wesley, if Wesley comes and slashes some shit that is a Frank Herring or Pablo Picasso. A Pablo Picasso original. Well, fuck. Pablo Picasso paid my own fucking picture. I'm old as shit. But I'm saying, right. I know where you're getting at. I know where you're getting right. at. Right. What would you do if Pablo Picasso did an original? Fuck. If Wes did that, I'd have to get something like a bat because that motherfucker is big. <laughs> He's big. I got to take his knees out or some shit. You got to do something. something. But you know you would get a bat. Oh. I mean, look. If, if Wes came in my house and fucked my shit up. I'd be really confused. I mean, and and, and I'm putting it in the context. <laughs> You'd be like, really confused. Like, what's happening? Oh, I mean, well, you would have seen the confrontation, this, and but, because he's being a big baby, he's oh, being a he big is, baby. Okay. I'd make him pay in, for in it. all honesty, this guy, no, no. But I he mean, said, I'd, "Don't bring it up, I'd Megan." Beat his bring ass. Beat his ass. And honestly, to Frank's. Going to Frank <laughs> fucked up. If fucking fucking Ricky Ricardo fucking came and fucking talked shit to my face and I'm Frank Sinatra. Right. Fuck that motherfucker. I'm gonna he beat needed to your do that. ass. No, I don't he give needed to do shit. that. He knew but see that show you he wasn't all that big and bad, because if you were that big and bad, you would have kept your word. I don't give a shit if you're fucking... I don't give a fuck Desi Arnaz is. I'm beating the shit out of you. Oh, me and my friends here. Here's a message from my fucking friends. But no. Dead. Well, they were... They were good. It's good. I like it. <laughs> but you say that. You say great. that now. But if it was The Rock, 
say the rock was his bodyguard because that's what it was. It was like the rock was his was there were two the rocks was uh, Desi Arnaz's bodyguard. You'd be like, mm, taking the shot. I, I I'm taking the shot. I don't. I got a pretty face, but you got a pretty face. I don't give a shit. You got but, a pretty but, face. But here's the thing Have you ever like, gotten into a fight like that? Many of those he's had. It's, I oh, if That's I had good. more of these, I mean, I'm, I'm first. The first. Y'all the taking first, that bottle? Please don't. Yeah, y'all taking that bottle. No, Maybe you can I, share it with your dad. Do not give that to your dad. Okay, never mind. Never mind. Shit. You want to see an Italian man put my license places on <laughs> He'll fire? come and slash your shit on it. Yeah, actually. He might license places on fire. His famous line, my this little side note, famous yeah. line is, uh, all I need is a tank of gas and a flare. Oh, make shit. Make shit happen. Oh, damn. That's real, that's that's, real Italian. That's real that's that's Italian. Italian once. It was like our oh, gas yeah, company yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's for another That's for another time. Uh, if anything, I'm frank. I'm like, Shit, Why? I, I wouldn't want to mess with Desi Arnaz, though. No, what are you talking about? Desi Arnaz. He was the man head. back then. He was the man. But he wasn't no. with the mafia. Yeah, I wouldn't mess with the mafia. I ain't gonna lie. I ain't gonna lie. Was Desi? Maybe I skipped that. But <laughs> was Desi tied in like Frank? Though <laughs> Frank was also tied in, though. You know, a lot of Hollywood was. No, he was not tied in like Frank Sinatra. No. Yes, exactly. I ain't gonna lie. So Frank, Des, we but, gonna get into all yeah. that. So. In regards to Frank, he stayed in close contact uh, because President Kennedy frequently called him in L.A. a lot when he was in town. And in fact, uh, President Kennedy was scheduled to stay at Frank's Palm Springs house on March 1962 during a West Coast visit. And Frank was super duper, duper excited. Um that he started adding cottages on his property for President Kennedy and the Secret Service. He put in 25 extra phone lines. He installed cable, switchboard, and he built a heliport. Is that right, heliport? Heliport, yeah, man. So you can just take in, fly right in, exactly. fly right out. He wanted to be easy peasy. He even erected a flagpole for the presidential flag after he saw the one flying over the Kennedy compound in Hinesport. So here we go. <clears throat> right before his scheduled trip, Jack Kennedy's brother, Bobby, armed with photographs and wiretaps of his stuff of that trip that he had did with uh, to see Lucky Luciano, he went to his brother, and, uh, and he also had pictures of Frank with Sam Giancana. Even though he always denied it, Sinatra was a close friend of Salvatore Sam Giancana, the powerful syndicate boss of the Chicago Mafia from 1957 to 1966. Sinatra and Giancana shared the same passions, money, gambling, and women, and often partied together in casinos and nightclubs. Sinatra performed at Giancana's Chicago club. Moreover, Giancana was a silent partner in Sinatra's Las Vegas hotel, Cal Never Lodge, for a few years. During that time, Sam was banned from the casinos in the state of Nevada, but Mr. Sinatra continued to allow him to stay at the Cal Never Lodge, which resulted in Sinatra losing his gambling license by the Nevada Gaming Control Board. Sinatra sought to explain that Giancana was only visiting his girlfriend, Phyllis McGuire. It didn't work. In June 1975, Sam was shot in the back of the head as he fried sausages and peppers. After Sam fell to the floor, the still unknown gunman turned him over and shot him six more times in the face and neck. 
Investigators suspected the murder was someone known to Gyeong Connor, because due to his heart condition, he stopped eating rich foods and was cooking for the presumed gunman. So Bobby dissuaded his brother from accepting Frank's hospitality. Oh, man. In addition, Bobby was simultaneously investigating Sam Giacana. So President Kennedy was like, you know, I got to agree with my brother, you know, and they decided to stay at Bing Crosby's house, who lived in the area, probably around the corner or next door. And in fact, the Secret Service would be staying next door to Bing Crosby. Uh, <coughs> oh, he, I got this wrong. The Secret Service decided to stay at Bing Crosby. I mean, Jack Kennedy's at Bing Crosby's house, right? Mm -hmm. And then next door was composer Jimmy, the one where he's, you know, took a knife and tore up his uh, uh, Norman Rockwell yeah, yeah. painting. So the Secret Service stayed at neighbors. composer Jimmy's house, which, which was bad. And they told Peter Lawford, they said, you got to go bring it to Frank. You go tell him. Uh, and he did it over the phone. And Frank got off the phone and went outside with a sledgehammer and started chopping up the concrete landing pad of his heliport. He was that furious. And he didn't speak to composer Jimmy for weeks. And he cut Peter Lawford out of the rest of the Rat Pack films and never spoke to him again. Well, I mean, why, why would he do that to Peter Lawford? I mean, he was just, just like shooting the messenger. He definitely shot the messenger. I mean, they tried to, you know, mollify him, you know, because he went back and he's like, look, Frank's taking it hard. And so Jack Kennedy called him up going, hey, Frank, it, you know, <clears throat> it was a security issue, you know, but he wasn't to be dissuaded. He was... Um, no bueno. I mean, he's Frank's a smart guy. Frank's like no, it's but he held grudges. Oh, yes, he did. But he held a grudge. Don't don't take it out on Peter Lawford, but he took it out on Peter Lawford. So by May May fifteenth, nineteen sixty two, Nevada records showed that Frank owned thirty six percent of Cal Neva. And during the summer of nineteen sixty two, federal agents were investigating a prostitution ring at Cal Neva. Yeah, they used women flown in from like San Francisco. Exactly. I don't know what's the big deal about San Francisco, but San Francisco played into it. Hmm. I don't know why. Interesting. So the operation was conducted openly from the, the prostitution ring, was conducted openly from the main registration desk of the lodge. And so then there was an attempted murder of an employee that was shot on the front steps of the lodge. And a few weeks after that, Marilyn Monroe tried to commit suicide there. But she managed to contact the Cal Neva operator in time to be rushed to the hospital to have her stomach pumped. And a few days later, you know, she died. Oh, man. Supposedly of another overdose. But here's, here's the catch, which is rich on Frank's part. He was mad at Marilyn for, for, you know, trying to commit suicide. And it's like all the other times he tried to commit suicide over Ava Gardner. Mm -hmm. And it was like, that's real rich. He was really angry at her for doing that. And then the day before, but he probably was angry because they were already getting heat from all this other stuff, mm -hmm. and she just played into it. So the day before Frank was supposed to answer the charges for the Nevada Gaming Board, he decided to disassociate himself completely from the gaming industry. He gave up all of his interest in Cal Neva as well as his 9% interest in the Sands, and he lost his gaming license on January 5th, 1964. Mm. Completely cut out. Cut himself out. There you go. Goes right back to cutting everything out. That's true. He likes to do that. He does. He likes to do when that. When he's done, he's done. But, like, why? Well, yeah. Like, because, why do that? Because, yeah, he knew that charges might be coming. 
You know what I mean? So he's like, uh, yeah, I got to disassociate myself. So Frank was on stage 22 of the Warner Brothers lot making Robin and the Seven Hoods. Did you see that, Christian? No, I Have actually you? haven't seen that one. Have you seen any movies by Frank Sinatra? Oh, yeah, Ocean's Eleven. You saw Ocean's Eleven? Oh, yeah, I've seen that multiple. Actually, we just watched that a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Really? Is it based on the one with Brad Pitt and all those guys? So that's those are based on this one. So the original one was the Frank Sinatra one. That was the Rat Pack. You had Sammy Davis Jr. You mm-hmm. had Peter Lawford. Dean Martin. Dean Martin. You had the whole the whole Rat Pack was in it. Joey Bishop. Joey Bishop was in it as well. How does he play into it? You know he's married to Cindy Adams. I don't know. I think he's no. dead now. Oh, she's got to be dead now, right? These guys, these guys are... Yeah. In their hundreds by now. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, it was good. I mean, it's a long movie. It's a couple. It was. It's yeah. like two it hours. Was. But yeah. It but was. Have you, ever, have you ever seen that? There's a famous picture of the th- like all those guys, and it just has all their names. Yes. That was during the filming of that movie. Wow. Sitting right outside the Sands Hotel. That's what a Sands Hotel. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Did you? Did they sing in it, or was it just? Was it like a? Was it like a robbery, robbery movie, like I mean, you know, it, bank robbery, like just like the one with George Clooney and all that? It's the same thing. The names are just different. Uh, Frank plays the Danny Ocean character, plays the main guy, and kind of gets everybody together. But it really isn't like a musical aspect. I mean, there is a couple scenes where you have Dean Martin, who kind of plays as the local... I mean, he, he's he's the, the singer, basically. Mm-hmm. He's the act in Vegas of one of the hotels that they're they're knocking up. So he's kind of like the point person as far as, like, getting people to move and kind of guiding from within. Right. But uh, no, you, you do get a couple musical numbers, which is actually pretty cool. Oh, you do? Do they all sing, or is it just Frank? No, just Dean. Just Dean, Dean sings. Yeah. That's, I was, that was kind of surprising. Yeah, so Frank doesn't play, like, a, a singer or anything. Dean actually plays that So Frank's role. an actor. Oh yeah, he's a straight actor in this film. Like he is, he is playing wow. the, the heist master. Did you like it? I did, I did, because it, it gives it gives that. Once again, like we were talking about in uh, earlier in these episodes, was Frank just has that swagger where it's he just does. He's very cool, very calm, and no matter what's kind of coming through, right? He's always level headed, and he kind of gets the job done. So to mm-hmm. see him in action like that, and act through it, and act, I mean, he's. To me, he's he's really just acting through his own personality, minus the anger and the outburst and stuff that, which I am finding out a lot <laughs> more now. Suicide of Oh Dems. man! Um, but he plays that, and especially that persona that everybody is kind of familiar with, Frank Sinatra. Mm. Like when you think Frank, like I yeah, said, yeah, I think cool, very much. calm, yeah, very cool, cool. Yeah, he was. Did he have a drink in his hand most of, of the time? He did. And, and a know, cigarette. Of course, he did. I mean, that was, you know, that's that the 60s, the 50s, 60s. But it's amazing to see totally. how long these guys actually lived. I mean, I know. guys are just like. I mean, because Sammy Davis died, oh, we'll get to that, which was sad, but like 1990s, yeah, Sammy Davis? In the 60s. Yeah. I think he was like. Yeah. The- he actually, to me, lived. Too short of a life because sixty four is still yeah. yeah it's not old at all. He died right after Ava Gardner oh, in nineteen ninety. So Frank. it was like Ava, and then yeah, he, he didn't have a good year. We'll get to that part, but he didn't have a good year. But anyway, so Frank was on stage twenty two of the Warner Brothers lot making Robin in the Seven Hoods when he got the news of JFK's assassination, and for the first time in a long time, he went to church to pray. That night, that when JFK was assassinated, and then on December eighth, nineteen sixty-three, his nineteen-year-old son Frank Jr. was kidnapped at gunpoint. 
And Frank called Peter Lawford. Remember, he, he wasn't really speaking to him. He never really spoke to him after this, but he made that one call to Peter Lawford and um, asked him to call Bobby and get the FBI in on the case and get back to him in Reno. Peter did as he was asked. Uh, the kid was kidnapped by two 23-year-old guys at Harrah's in Lake Tahoe. Um, on Monday, December 9th at 4.45 p.m., he finally received the first of seven calls for ransom money. And following the script that one of the kidnappers had, had written, he went to his former wife's home in Bel Air, and Frank, accompanied by an FBI agent, delivered $240,000, which would be $1.9 million today, in a brown paper bag, according to the kidnappers' instructions. After 54 hours, Frank Jr. was released two miles from his mother's home in Bel Air. And I just got to say, I didn't put it in here, but they did catch the guys, like, right away. Oh, I'm sure. And I caught them, like, yeah, two yeah. seconds. I'm I mean, sure. FBI. I mean. And I'm sure in the 60s, they, they went through due process and all that good stuff. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah uh-huh. and Bobby did help out. Like, they made he made that one call to Peter Lawford. Peter called Bobby. Bobby said, tell him we got him. It's all good, and they, they did take care of it. So hopefully, but he still held a grudge against Peter and Bobby. It wouldn't be Frank if he wasn't holding the grudge. Exactly, <laughs> right. Wouldn't, wouldn't be, be the same. So Frank Sinatra met his third wife, Mia Farrow, on the set of his film Von Ryan's Express in 1965. She was 19, and he was 50 years old. Uh, I know, look at Megan's face. She was younger than Nancy Jr. and Frank Jr. at the time. By her account, she liked him instantly. They married on July 19, 1966. His hit record, Strangers in the Night, was playing faintly during the four-minute civil ceremony. No members of his family were there. And the crazy thing about that, and it was one of the documentaries you told us to uh, watch, but she caught a lot of flack. Like, he, he, like, the press and, like, the public's eye, like, I mean, they said some really nasty stuff about her, man. Okay, like, like what? Because she was a hippie. Right. And she he cut was, her hair. No, she cut her hair. She called her, like, a little boy. Yeah, he called her a little boy. Very good, yeah. I didn't put that in here, but, yeah, he'd be like, oh, here comes a little boy. He would say stuff, too, to her. Oh. So what What else did the press say to her? I mean, that, that was one that pretty much just stuck out. Because, you know, Frank has always been known to just have, like, these starlets that were around him. And stuff right. Like that. This was... To me, this was like the first time that he started catching criticism for some of the choices mm. he made in the public eye. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, he was obviously put on blast with some of his mafia connections. But right. Usually, Frank was he was baby blue eyes. He was the girl's right. dreams. I mean, when he was first coming up. So the Mia Farrow one that was that was odd. And you made a point, like she was just that she was a hippie. Like she was very she was very hippie. much into activism. She smoked like weed. He drank. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? She. You know, she, instead of he smoked cigarettes and she smoked weed. They were so different from each other. Yeah, it was the old school versus the new school at the time. Mm-hmm. That's true. No. So, that's true. A, fo- a few months later in November 1966, Frank began an engagement in Las Vegas. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Mia sat in the front row. And during his set, he said, well, let's see what else is new. Because he would take little tea breaks, technically, where he'd have his little drink. And he said, what else is new? Oh, yeah, I got married. She's here. Yeah, I sure got married. Well, you see, I had to. I finally found a broad I can cheat on. And a gasp was like, did what Megan just did. A gasp rose from the crowd and head swiveled to Mia's reaction. But she lowered her head in shame. 
Sensing the audience's disapproval, Frank tried to continue as if nothing had happened and their marriage was troubled from the start because Frank thought that she enjoyed being a movie star more than being his wife. And on top of that, like we talked about, they were different. Yep. They were too different. I don't care. You don't say that. <laughs> That's fucked up. Sorry. No. Well, he was used to that. He was I don't used care. to that. She's sitting in the room. I finally found a broad I can cheat on. I think because she was so young. Maybe. But still, she you're right. She took it and stayed. Yeah. Not for long, boo-boo. So in 1967, Mia started making Rosemary's Baby, which caused the final rupture, made by Paramount. <laughs> and Frank ordered her to walk off the set and come to him. And she refused, and then he called Bob Evans head of Paramount uh-huh. at the time, and demanded her release. And Evans said they needed her for another month of shooting. And Frank insisted until Bob Evans said, well, while she's working for us, she's Mira Farrow, not Mrs. Sinatra. That night, she went to a disco and danced with Robert Kennedy, his nemesis, which infuriated Frank, who told his lawyer to draw up divorce papers. He had his minion, his lawyer, Deliver the papers to Mia on the set. And minutes, minutes later, minutes later, his publicist announced their separation. He didn't even tell her first. And a few weeks later, she, she spent Christmas with Frank. However, after that, he never called her again. Like, he cut it off. Oh, it's his thing. He likes to cut people out. Isn't that crazy? Except for Ava. Ava, he could, yeah. And they still remained friends, him and Ava. I did read somewhere... That she had two abortions by him. Two? Not just one. She had two. She was not trying she to She talked about it in her him. memoir. Yeah. She was like, mm, no. I think the kid would have been gorgeous, though. Oh, beautiful. Both but it would have been, been fucked up. It would have been oh, fucked yeah. up. Totally. So, in 1968, the impending divorce rattled him and he became really grumpy. And during the filming of one of his movies, one of the actors messed up his lines after three takes. Frank got so mad that he went over and slapped the actor in the face a few times and told him to shape up. He refused to do more than one take and ripped out handfuls of the script to save time. He offered Mia a generous alimony, but she refused any kind of financial settlement, saying all she wanted was his friendship. She kept the jewelry he had given her and the 48 place settings of silver, but she moved out of the home in Bel Air taking only her clothes and her stuffed animals from the bedroom. That lets you know you're too you're damn young. She's, mm-hmm. what, 22 at this barely point? Barely 20, 22, barely. She agreed to a quickie divorce in Juarez, Mexico, <coughs> and Mia refused to charge Frank with mental cruelty, saying the only acceptable ground would be incompatibility. That's very mature for a 19- or 20-year-old something. Yeah, it is. You know, and not mm-hmm. to accept any type of financial and say, I only want friendship. Probably me, I've been like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> give me the money, that's cool. I mean, at 20, 21, yeah. you know, I have to give her a thing, but, I mean, he was crazy. So the night before the decree was granted, Mia was in Hollywood at the Daisies. That's just this club. Like, it's a famous club at the time. It was like the Craig's down the street that everybody yeah. goes to. Mm-hmm. When George Jacobs, the one who saved him from his suicide attempts, his, you know, the black guy was his valet for, I'd say, a lot of years. Walked in with his date, and Mia grabbed him for a dance. And since it was the eve of her divorce, 
that dance with her hus- husband's handsome black valet became a gossip item on Rona Barrett's television show. You don't know if you guys know who no. Rona Barrett. She was she was huge back in the day of the gossip columnist, and she had her own TV show. When George returned to Sinatra's house in Palm Springs, where he was living, Frank refused to speak to him. The maid came and said, Mr. Sinatra wants you to get out of the house now. Uh, This was the day of the divorce, and Frank locked himself in his room and wouldn't come out. George says, I banged on the door and said, what's wrong? What's going on? He would say, talk to my lawyer, and he wouldn't open the door. And they had been together for 14 years, and that's how he fired George. Wow. Wow. Again. Cole. Again. Don't matter. Cole. Don't matter. He's getting grumpy. Yeah, he's becoming mad at everybody. That's that's jerky right there. That's mean. It's really mean. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, time and time again, I mean, he's cut people out for, by he, doing far less. I mean, look, poor Joey Lawford. I mean, he even went back and did him a favor and still. I know. He <laughs> still wouldn't talk like, to I still him. hate you, but thanks for getting my son Damn. back. <laughs> See, I would have been done with his ass when he went to my Norman Rockwell painting and took a knife to cut <laughs> oh, that shit out. Oh, God. It, I would have, Frank would not have had to worry about not speaking well, to me. He, I wouldn't have spoke to fucking Frank again. No, he threw temper tantrums. He was like a little child. It was, and it's funny because as he got older, he got worse, worse, and worse. That's nuts. So anyway, on January 24th, 1969, Frank's father, 77-year-old Marty Sinatra, died of cardiac arrest. He was married to Dolly for 55 years. And after his father's death, Frank raised $805,000 at the time to endow the Martin Anthony Sinatra Medical Education Center adjoining the Desert Hospital in Palm Springs in 1971. It might still be there. Probably it is. Yeah, I would, yeah. By late 1969, Frank had persuaded Dolly to move to Palm Springs in October 1969 on the promise that he would move his father's remains to a crypt in Palm Springs minutes from his house, and he did. Uh, (coughs) Frank built her a five-bedroom house and hired a staff for her. One reason for Dolly's move was simply to see her son because in October of 1969, same month, he could no longer visit her in New Jersey without being arrested. The mob shit again. Oh. He had refused to re- appear before the state commission to answer questions about organized crime <laughs> and was being threatened with possible contempt for declining to answer a subpoena. So to add fuel to the mob ties, fire, in 1969, Mario Puzo's book, The Godfather, was released and <laughs> became a huge hit. And there were many similarities between Frank and the Johnny Fontaine character that people assumed it was Frank. And Frank was so angry about the book, he saw Mario Puzo at Chasen's restaurant, and he scolded him so bad that Mario left embarrassed. So did you see? Of course you've seen The Godfather. Mm-hmm. And I want to say this, and actually I didn't even put this in my notes, but the part when Johnny Fontaine goes to The Godfather is like, I really got to have that part. I really got to have that part, Godfather. And he was like, you got to start by acting like a man. And he slapped him and stuff. So they were, they were saying that that's, sim- that's similar to the From Here to Eternity, mm. what happened with From Here to Eternity, wow. that they used their mob ties to, um, to, get the role. to get the role, that Harry Cohn was kind of connected with the mob mm. 
and <laughs> that they're kind of that's where they kind of loosely base it off of. And some people were saying that's not true. Oh my God, he got it because you know we know how bad he wanted it, and he really went to town. But they said that Harry Cohn did have mob friends, and remember Bugsy Siegel was huge in Hollywood, mm-hmm. you know, big time. Um, even though he was murdered. So after a year of horrible movie reviews and declining record sales, Frank retired in 1971. He gave a farewell performance for, on June 13, 1971, at the Motion Picture Television Release Fund. He vowed to never set foot in Vegas as well. He hung out in his Palm Springs home and had nightly parties with regulars that included Ronald Reagan's composer Jimmy and his wife. I know now I got to call him composer Jimmy. The Milton Burroughs, the Barbara and Zeppo Marks. And after Frank and Barbara started dating, they didn't see much of Zeppo because they oh started... I wonder why. He doesn't really have a moral compass, does he? No. Yeah, I read something where <laughs> they said that one of the women saw Barbara leave out like the next day. And they were like, you know, that's not really cool, Frank. He's like, hey, I didn't want the foxes to get to her. You know, I didn't want the coyotes to... So she had to stay over, but he was just making an excuse, making a joke. Yeah, no kidding. So Frank put away his Democratic Party leanings, and, you know, his mom had always supported, she supports the Democratic Party, and decided to support Richard Nixon, who was Republican, for re-election in 1972. He even contributed $53,000 to the cause, and Frank flew to Washington in January 1973, with Barbara Marks, newly divorced, by the way, she divorces Epo, to throw a series of pre-inaugural parties. Um, I think he was still smarting about a lot of things, and he was best friends with the guy, the vice president, Spiro Agnew. Oh, yeah, Agnew. He was best friends with Agnew, and so he switched at that point. So here we go. Here's another one. At one of the parties as he was getting out of the car... Frank recognized, uh, just pay pay close attention here, he recognized a Washington Post reporter named Maxine, we'll just call her Maxine, who had asked him months earlier if his alleged association with the mafia would prove to be an embarrassment to his good pal Agnew, Vice President Agnew, as it was to the Kennedy administration. She just asked that question out of the blues, getting out of the car. And surprisingly, he had poise. He was like, no, I don't worry about things like that. I look at people as friends, and that's all I worry about, nothing more. So months later, he sees Maxine approach Barbara as they're getting out for those uh, pre-inaugural parties for Nixon, right? He blew up and yelled, get away from me, you scum. Go home and take a bath. Print that, Miss Chelsea, that's her name. Get away from me. I don't want to talk to you. I'm getting out of here to getting out of here to get rid of your stench. Turning to the people around him, he said, You know, Miss Chesser, don't you? This that stench you smell is coming from her. He turned to her and screamed, You're nothing but a two dollar cunt. C U N T. You know what that means, don't you? You've been laying down for two dollars all your life. He reached into his pocket pulled out two $1 bills and stuffed them into her plastic glass she was holding. Here, baby, that's what you're used to. Grabbing Barbara, he said, let's get the hell out of here. Every newspaper in the country wrote about it, and everyone in Washington was appalled by his behavior. There he goes, flying off the handle again. Yep, he was so upset that he did not 
leave the House for two days, and he canceled his appearance at several inaugural events. Nixon was pissed off when he heard what happened and blamed Agnew for bringing Sinatra into the GOP court circles to begin with. Then Frank exacerbated the situation by instructing his driver to go to every pharmacy in town and buy up hundreds of bottles of vagina vagina sprays and douches and wrote a note to Maxine saying that she would know how to use these products and have them delivered to her at the Washington Post. Frank's lawyer told the driver to just say that he did it, but don't do it. Edward Bennett Bennett Williams, the attorney for the Washington Post, asked Mickey, his attorney, for an an acceptable apology, which was not forthcoming. Maxine threatened to sue for slander, if for no other reasons than to force that apology. She said, if he had attacked me as a reporter, I would have taken it, but he attacked me as a woman. And she said, I feel I owe it to my children to sue. I'm square enough that virtue means something to me. I take my reputation and the sanctity of my home very seriously. In the end, she decided against a lawsuit, but Frank never apologized for his vulgar tirade against her. In fact, he doubled down and said horrible things about the press months later by calling them garbage collectors. What do you think about that? I mean, he was definitely in the wrong. I mean, that shit today would not fly. C-U-N-T. You don't say that word either. That's... I mean, Barbara stayed with him. She's the. She was there. She saw all of it. What would you do if you saw Christian act like that? Goodbye. <laughs> I. I like it how he answers for you. Very. He, he looked at you in the eyes and went goodbye. Well, you, that's that is not in your character. Maybe it's that's not maybe, in his maybe, character. Maybe that wasn't his character. It is in his character. Seen that? It is in the character. So she he chose had anger. it. So you're right. That's what she liked. That's what she liked. But if you she saw, left her husband for him. Yes. If you saw Christian go off and then go completely bananas, what would you I'd do? Drive you to the police station. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You would make Christian apologize. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. I mean, you no. wouldn't make him double down and go get some vagina no, sprays and bullshit. douches. No, he should have let that one just go. But uh, he kept going crazy. But once again, Frank can't <laughs> let shit go. He's just gonna keep on coming. I mean, and if you don't like it, he's cutting it out. So, yeah, he, I mean, look, especially as he's getting older and grumpy. He let it just, go. He went bananas. I mean, oh, he gets good. Oh, here we go more. again. Here we go again, <laughs> children. In 1973, I said 1963. In 1973, Frank announced the end of his two year retirement through a carefully orchestrated TV special in which he was backed by a 54-piece orchestra. He came out and did a TV special. The reviews and ratings were dismal, with Caesar's Palace under new management and willing to pay Frank $400,000 a week in addition to providing free bodyguards to avoid any unpleasant incidents. He returned to Las Vegas on January 25, 1974, and performed and sold-out shows. He launched a hugely successful U.S. tour, which led to a five-country tour through Europe, which would end in Australia. So um, I got to say, so see, he was the originator of going to Vegas and, you know, mm-hmm. before the Britneys, yeah, before your girl Brittany and girl. Celine mm-hmm. and Elton, he was the, he made it popular to go to Vegas. And Elvis, right? Mm-hmm. Elvis. 
And Elvis was there probably around this time, was he? Is mm. Elvis still alive? Yeah, he was. He died in like 1970, like 8 or 77. Oh, look at Elvis that. and Aretha Franklin died on the same day. Oh. Yeah, you did say that. Yep. So, here we go. In Melbourne, Australia, he refused to be interviewed and yelled at reporters after rehearsal. When he walked past cameramen outside of his hotel, he signaled his bodyguards into action. You find out when Elvis was... Uh, 77. 77. So, three years later. So, I'm going to say this again. When he walked past cameramen outside of his hotel, he signaled his bodyguards into action. One of them wrapped an electric cord around one of their one of the... <laughs> what the hell is this? <laughs> what? Frank is just not like... He is and just one his, I know. One of his bodyguards did that, wrapped an electric cord around one of the cameraman's throats. And a woman reporter appeared with cuts on her face. <laughs> she don't know, I don't know how she got that, but at his sold-out show that night, Frank sat on a stool to talk to the audience, you know, during his little tea time, and criticized Australia's reporters. He called them bums and parasites who've never done an honest day's work. He said that most of the male reporters are a bunch of fags anyway. He called the women broads and buck-and-a-half hookers. Yeah, wow, he kept going. Yeah, now he <laughs> went from two to a buck and a half. half. He took off 50 cents. Um, he kept going. Cord. I don't know where you would find an electric cord, number one, to be able to wrap it around somebody's neck, but whatever, around their throat. Salt. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Salting people. But where would you get an electric cord to wrap no. around somebody's throat as a bodyguard? Whatever. Mob shit. I know. <laughs> Let me go walk into this uh, do-it-yourself store. I know. <laughs> I know, cord. right? Dang. It's like, take it just in case you need it. And he kept on going and going and going, just becoming belligerent. So Jim North of the Australian Journalists Association said, he released a statement, said, I will call on 114 affiliated unions and ask them to blackball Sinatra unless he apologizes for calling our women journalists whores. The stagehands... Union refused to work, so Frank's $650,000 Australian concert tour was canceled. I don't know how much that would be for today, but probably in the millions. The waiter's union refused to serve him, so room service at his hotel was cut off. The transport union workers refused to refuel his Gulfstream jet, blocking his departure until he said he was sorry. Refusing to apologize to members of the press, Frank demanded that they apologize to him. For 15 years of abuse, I have taken from the world press. Then he retreated to his hotel. Why, Mickey Rudin, his lawyer, called the president of the Australian Labor Party, Robert Hawke, to ask whether the singer would be allowed to leave the country. And the guy says, if he can walk on water, he can do it. But he says there'll be no boat or plane leaving until he apologizes. So Rudin spent the next... Let's see how many days or weeks, three hours, not even days, negotiating with the labor leader, Hawk, after a public statement, trying to decide on a public statement that would satisfy Australians while preserving Frank's pride. And the final result was a joint statement that, without an explicit apology from Frank, said, 
that he did not intend any general reflection upon the moral character of working members of the Australian media. It went on and on, and U.S. editorials cheered the Australians for forcing Frank to his knees, and Bob Hope told his audience (laughs) about the episode, and he said they finally let Frank out of the country right after the head of the union down there woke up one morning and saw a kangaroo head on the next pillow. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. <laughs> That's funny. That is funny, isn't it? Mob shit. <laughs> but I thought that was a great joke. That was a great joke. Cause you know, in The Godfather, there's a horse head. When when okay, when Johnny Fontaine, okay, did you see The Godfather? Mm-hmm. You know, when Johnny Fontaine wants that part, and he says no, and they put a horse head in his bed, and then the head of the union woke up with a kangaroo head on the bed. Oh my god, that was freaking hilarious. So shortly before, so after that, Frank came back to New York where he performed on a live TV show before a sold-out audience at Madison Square Garden where he again spewed hateful venom at the press but held himself in check until the commercial breaks of the TV show. And he would say, here's what he said. You want to hear what he said? Mm-hmm. A funny thing happened to see. There, there he is right there. <laughs> the, the sirens going Frank. on. A funny thing happened in Australia, he said. I made a mistake and got off the plane. You think we've got trouble with one Rona Barrett, because, you know, he hated Rona. But they've got 20 in Australia, and each one's uglier than the other. Those nickel and dime garbage dealers made Rona Barrett look like a nun. The audience screamed disapproval, but the ratings were abominable for the TV show. It was bad. And his show, um, which was billed as a once-in-a-lifetime event, at Madison Square Garden, fell to number 40 in the week ratings uh, behind Kojak and reruns of Father Knows Best. So shortly before Barbara had accompanied Frank to the Nixon Agnew inaugural in 1973, she sued Zeppo for divorce, and she was awarded $1,500 a month alimony for 10 years, plus a 1969 Jaguar, and Frank immediately replaced it with a brand new one. So Barbara turned out to be a really good companion to him. You know, she traveled around the world with him and helped him with his parties because she didn't want to be a movie star or singer. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was uncomplicated, and she didn't mind him being in the spotlight. But a major drawback to the relationship was Frank's mother, Dolly, who could not stand Barbara. And she took every opportunity to tell her so. Dolly would say real out loud, real loud, I don't want no whore coming into this family. So he called journalists whore, but then his mom called Barbara a whore. And she said if she had to eat at the same table with Barbara, they said it was awful. She'd say horrible things, and Barbara would go running away from the table in tears, but Frank wouldn't do anything. He'd say something like, oh, mom, but that was it. And he didn't stop seeing Barbara. Um, By the way, if your mom sat down and said, I don't want no whore coming to the table, marrying Christian, what would you do? There's no way that comes out of her mouth. But in that hypothetical situation... Right. Even it, though she's a silent assassin. We, it would be... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the woman is very calculated. Very calculated. Has, uh, she not, has she not liked any of your girlfriends? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, but she How do you know? How do you know? Oh, you could just tell. Like, her temperament... She, she you not, know if she hates you yeah, right off the it's bat. Not so what much. makes her not... What makes your mom... Hate a girl that I mean she doesn't obviously loves. She's just she just obviously loves Megan. She's got a good real 
good tell. I mean, right. I, I know it's everybody could say it's like oh, so they could just read a person and stuff like that. But she, she truly, and especially being in the profession she's been in and selling cars, like right, she knows a bullshitter from a bullshitter, right. You know, and she's been very straightforward. So when she, you know, gets to know a person or right, and she'll always give him that chance. Mm-hmm. But if she just sees something she doesn't like, she's not going to sit there and pretend like she does. So if so, so what would make her say this is pre Megan, mm-hmm. right? So Megan's not even in the picture. What would make her say, mm-hmm. I don't like her? Just. Just the actions. Would the girl be like ditzy or something or I mean, she got no time shallow? For, she had no time for stupid. That's number one. But okay. that's okay. That, but it's just I, I, and it's like I'm saying. It's like she could just because that must be hard for a guy. Yeah, I mean, look, it's look. That's your mom. That's the first woman you love right. in, your, in your entire life. Right. That is one of the most cherished relationships. Right. Yeah, but as you get older, you have to make your own choices. Um, Kind of like what Frank did, right? I mean, look, because he kept dating Barbara. Yeah, right. he he kept being with her, but right. if that, if, he I mean, didn't defend her though. No, if that situation came up between the two of us, like there would be a little bit of an outrage at the table, which mm-hmm. I've, I've done before. You, you know? have you've defended but, the honor. You've said, "Oh, absolutely, mom, even stop in, it." Even in past relationships and stuff like that, I've, we've gotten up and laughed. Mm-hmm. But more than time, damn, was it that bad? Was it that Wait, bad? Where she you can... do that? Okay, what happened? Tell oh, me. Oh no, it was just it was an ex girlfriend. It was just. You could just tell my mom was just not digging the, the thing. Actually, she got up and just left because I was like, we got in an argument. I was telling her she was wrong. You know, tell my mom she's wrong. Right. She was up. I'm done. Have a good night. And just left. But, you know, look, she was right. I mean, she was. I, I think mean, I know who it was. Too. I mean, she <laughs> was right. I mean, that, I mean, the person's a great person. It just wasn't right for me. Right. So. Right. But she could see that. She could sense that. Mm-hmm. Um, Why couldn't. Now, see. Maybe just something I'd ask your mom is, yeah, was the girl disrespectful to you? Oh yeah. Oh, okay, so that's what it was. But not not in she, that. But not in that. Situation. Not in that situation. But she could see I where could that see, was. The, where that was leading. Because I feel bad for people who, when you got to deal with your mom and then the the but person like, you're with. Why did she hate Barbara? Like, what did was she just jealous? She just didn't like. She just didn't like Barbara. She did something about Barbara. She didn't like, and his own kids didn't like her. It gets bad. We'll deal with that. But um, but anyway, so around 1974, Barbara, and that's why I was curious because you're so close to your mom. Mm-hmm. That's why I asked because you're tight with your yeah. moms. Mm-hmm. And it must be difficult to be I, in a... I mean, it depends. I mean, look, Frank obviously I mean, if the woman's a, a bitch, yes. Yeah. She has every right to be... I mean, look, I mean, Frank I had a friend who, who slashed her mother-in-law's tires. What the hell? That's crazy. I knew a person who did that. But look, like Frank, like you probably have but to. The, the thing is, is never like, speak to if her I, again. If I was no. in Frank's situation, there, I'd be like, "This is getting ridiculous. You cannot be here if you're going to continue to act that way." Right. Frank obviously had a different relationship, whereas yeah. I could say it. But more, right. more likely than not, my mom was correct in the assumption. Mm-hmm. She's like, "All right, well, you're going to fucking pay for this because you're going to go through hell." I'm She's like, "You're going to pay I'm for that." On it now. She's yeah. going because she going like, "You're going to pay more for that BMW." <laughs> you don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You <laughs> don't get the family discount anymore. <laughs> you ain't yeah. no, no more family discount for you. Um, so he didn't stop seeing Barbara, of course. And around 1974, Barbara began pressuring Frank to marry her. So he ended re- the relationship very briefly before reconciling with her. And before long, he asked her to marry him. And they married on July 11th, 1976. The only invited guest who declined was Frank Jr., who had a singing engagement on the East Coast. And this is brilliant. 
Megan, here it comes. As a wedding present, he sent his dad a carton full of paperback sex manuals. And his father was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> what, is, what the hell is this supposed to mean? And Frank Jr. said, well, the fourth time, there must be something wrong, Dad. <laughs> I figured maybe you needed some help. He was teasing him. Oh, okay, okay, yes, teasing him. But I love it when kind he of says, a backhanded thing, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, backhanded joke, right? So by 1977, Frank's Las Vegas shows were always exciting spectacle that brought Dolly and the entire Sinatra family together with Barbara sitting ringside for every performance, and she loved the glitter of it all. And his shows drew major Hollywood movie stars. And for her son's opening uh, on Thursday, January 6th, Dolly and her New Jersey house guest, Anna, made plans to take a chartered Learjet from Palm Springs to Las Vegas because Dolly preferred going on her own so she didn't have to deal with Barbara. And she didn't want to be a part of Barbara's entourage. So at 4 p.m., the two women were picked up by one of Frank's employees and driven to the airport where they boarded a small little luxurious jet, which was stocked with liquor, cheese, crackers, cookies, everything that you'd want for that 20-minute flight, which is how we're going to travel in style one day. Mm -hmm. Get ready, kids. Mm -hmm. Get ready. So the pilot and the co-pilot greeted them and radioed the control power for permission to take off. The pilot, who had flown this route many times, knew that the mountain range was in his path and going to Vegas, but he couldn't see it because it was snowing at this time. And at the altitude they were flying, the snow became very blind. So he radioed the tower asking for permission to increase his altitude to escape the snow-capped mountain looming ahead. And the tower granted permission but retracted it at the last minute, and the plane slammed into an icy mountain. Yeah, the impact was so powerful that the wings and the tails were sheared from the fuselage. And the operators of the Learjet service immediately contacted Frank's attorney, Mickey, who flew from Los Angeles to Las Vegas to tell Frank that his mother's plane had disappeared in the snowstorm. Shaken, but hoping that she would survive because she was such an indomitable spirit, Frank decided to go on with his opening uh, night show as if nothing had happened. And he did allude to the missing plane in his show, and he was 61, and he sang very smoothly and joked easily, and they gave him a standing ovation. But when there was no word by midnight, he began to lose hope. And when the rescue efforts had to be called off because of the snow and driving winds, he canceled the rest of his engagement and returned with Barbara to Palm Springs to wait. And by the way, I want to say this about him is that I didn't put it in my notes, but he did say if this is going to put people's lives at risk looking for the plane don't do it yeah you know and so the next morning he was very grief-stricken he was upset and he insisted on going up with one of the air patrol helicopter pilots to search for her and he sat in silence straining to like look for anything and the pilot circled circled for hours but there was no trace of the jet or any of its pilots uh passengers and all that could be seen was the rescue team in orange, slogging their way through everything. And finally, another pilot located the wreckage, and they broke the news to Frank, and he was devastated. Like, this is the one time in his life that he was completely 
broken because this was the most important person in his life. He wouldn't be who he was if she hadn't paid for that yeah. that PA system that he mm-hmm. took around. Who and else was on that plane? It was just her and the crew? or Her and the crew and her friend. And her friend. Yeah. And he laid her to rest next to his father in Palm Springs. And for days after her death, he would just sit in silence, they say, and just cry for hours. Aww. Yeah, that's, a was, ho- that's horrible, though. He was inconsolable. That's, inconsolable. That's horrible. Because she was the reason why he, one of the reasons why he became Frank Sinatra yeah. was his mom. Um, and she was so important in his life. I know. I know. God, Thank what a that. terrible way. That's so terrible. Yeah, Miss Dolly, I know. So Frank turned to finally turned to his Catholic faith for consolation. He kind of redirected it. So soon after, he decided that he wanted to return to the sacraments and remarry Barbara. Are you Catholic? Mm-hmm. What sacraments? Tell our audience what sacraments are. Well, I'm a terrible Catholic, but uh, sacraments. There are certain sacraments like you have your. I don't know if I'm going to name them all, but if you have your first Holy Communion, you have your um, confirmation, and marriage is a sacrament and. Wait, I think there's seven. And death is all the sacrament of death. I think your last rites. What is a sacrament? A last, like a... It's, um, it's, a, it's basically like a, a certain... Is it a uh, prayer? It's, no, no, it's like... It's communion? A, well, communion is one of the sacraments. So okay. it's like a certain passage that, that you reach each, like throughout your life as a Catholic. Like when you start out, like you, you get baptized, so that's a sacrament. I hope I'm saying this right. Otherwise, if no, any any of my family members that are diehard Catholics hear this, just, just sorry. It's been a while. They can come on and correct uh, us. First, so you have baptism, you have um, first confession, you have first communion, you have confirmation, marriage, and uh, try to remember what the last Mel one was. Mel and I don't know them, so we're yeah, not I'm here like, to judge. <laughs> no, 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 I gotta look them up. So you look it up, and so he decided to remarry Barbara his wife of six months in front of a Catholic priest. So I want to see how you feel about this, Megan. To do that, though, she would have to take instruction, which she said she wants to do. She wants to take instruction. She volunteered. She wanted to do that for him um, because he wanted to make his mom proud. But then he would have to obtain an annulment of his first marriage to Nancy. Wait, what? Yes, so there was no need. So in order to make this marriage with Barbara, I guess in the eyes of the church, uh, something that you, it's, it's in, I don't know, that it means something, I guess, he would have to obtain an annulment of his first marriage to Nancy. And there was no need to annul the marriages to Ava and Mia because they had not been performed in the Catholic Church and therefore uh, were not recognized as valid. So he had married wow. Nancy. So Frank said, I yeah. only got married twice. Yeah. So That's he worthy. said, so <laughs> only the 1939 marriage to Nancy Barbado, the mother of his children, the marriage that had produced his three kids, counted in the eyes of the Catholic Church. And he applied for an annulment of his marriage to Nancy. I got a problem with that. I just do. And his decision rocked the family, especially his kids, who believed that the church dissolution would mark them as illegitimate in the eyes of society. Though, in fact, an annulment does not nothing to affect the legitimacy or the laws of inheritance, I guess. Frank had to send a priest to convince his kids that the dissolution of his marriage to their mom 
and annulment of them to them to their mom would not harm them in the least. So he received an annulment in 1978, but he did not announce it then or when they married. When he married Barbara Knight in Palm Springs, Nancy was hurt by it. I would be hurt by yeah, it too. Yeah, for sure. I but mean, also, like his other marriages were legitimate too. That's not in the eyes of the church. I disagree, but I do too. Whatever. But I don't know. Would you want to give an annulment? No. But Frank gets his way because he's Frank. But she had to grant him that, right? She yes, did. she did. She did. She did grant him. Would you grant Christian that? No. Now you know, Christian. Don't get cute not gonna happen. over here. Don't get cute. Yes, when I get Even married you get Catholic with Church, so. just kidding. It's just a joke. <laughs> just a joke. Well, see, I got to say, you're not getting married through in a Catholic I'm Church. Not. So you, I wasn't he wouldn't even Catholic. So he wouldn't even ask you because they wouldn't even look at it a little legit. You're not a practicing Catholic. <laughs> He's not really? a practicing. Neither was Frank he until his mama died. whatever those things were. <laughs> well, neither could Frank until his mama died. <laughs> Um, so Frank continued his association with Ronald Reagan. So, oh, by the way, Frank received his annulment in 1978, and they remarried, and then everybody came back to the weddings, as we talked about, like Ronald Reagan and all of them. Anyway, Frank continued his association with Ronald Reagan and campaigned for him in 1980 for the 1980 presidential race. He sponsored the first major Ronald Reagan fundraiser in the Northeast and raised more than $250,000 in Boston. I should have said what it was today. But during those nine months, Frank decided to clean up his image with good works and prestigious awards. One more thing he decided was to reapply for that gambling license. Nothing seems to clean up your act like applying for a gambling license. There you go. Mm -hmm. There you go. There was a hearing for the formality. He received it. He was happy about it. And he loved the Reagans. He loved him some Nancy. Nancy loved her some Frank. They got along like gangbusters. So there was an incident. It it was a little bit of a blip in their in Nancy and Frank's relationship. I'm sure they got over it afterwards. But the Queen of England was coming over here. And she told Frank, you know, you know what, you can host the Hollywood version of it, you know, over at the, I think it's 20th Century Fox Mm -hmm. studio. But before that, Queen Elizabeth came to U.S. in March 1983 for a 10-day visit, right? Frank learned that the Queen was planning a dinner in honor of the Reagans aboard her yacht, the HMS Britannia, and he wasn't invited. So irritated, he made Barbara call the White House... Um, staff, chief of staff, Michael Devers. People should listen about my story on Michael Devers and the um, the interview with Gary Stromberg. That's a whole nother story about Michael Devers. But so Barbara called Michael Devers to to ask him to call Buckingham Palace to invite Frank. You know because they really wanted to come. Michael Devers was like, oh, no. okay, I'll do it for you. And he did. He politely called them and said, is it possible to let Frank Sinatra in this dinner? I mean, it's very important. And the palace was polite, you know, as British people are, very polite, took the matter under advisement. And it's like, no, we don't want him to come. They said no. So Frank was like, screw it. I'm going to pull out as producer of that dinner at one of the studios if you don't get me the invite. 
So somebody called, an appeal was made to Walter Annenberg. And we see Walter Annenberg in L.A. a lot because I think he's on a lot of buildings. Mm -hmm. Um, He's very powerful. He's dead. He was the former U.S. ambassador to the Court of James in Great Britain. So Walter pleaded for Frank to be there. On that case, they were like, you know what? Okay, we'll, we'll do that. So then Frank comes, and um, I guess he was supposed to host, and he stumbled over his lines. He forgot words to the songs. He committed a terrible faux pas when he neglected to welcome the queen from the stage. And then they say he compounded the mistake by throwing kisses to the first lady. And then torrential rains beat down on the tin roof of the sound stage was when they were at Fox by this time. So he went to the dinner, and now they're at Fox or wherever it was. And it made a big racket that Queen Elizabeth kind of just had to listen to 87-year-old George Burns tell off-color jokes. And then Nancy Reagan would, like, wince with embarrassment as, um, you know, performers. Frank was now 67, and Pori Como was like 70 year old, would like tell some nonsense, and it just basically caused it a disaster. Nancy was humiliated with him and upset with him at the same time. Also, the menu had seafood, which the Queen's staff had expressly asked not to be served. That's right, so they don't like seafood because you can get sick off of seafood and it's off the, the menu. And then the valets ran out of umbrellas. And then you're not supposed to leave before the queen, but I guess he was just, like, done with the night after it being a disaster that he just left. But I think he also tried to, like, ask her to, like, go do a tour of the stages or whatever it is, and she said no, and then he probably started getting—they said he started getting all kind of a little wild about that. He just acted a fool. He's just a child. 67 years old. So during this time, after his mom died, he made a pilgrimage to his hometown of Hoboken to make peace with his Irish grand godfather, to whom he had not spoken to for almost 50 years. By the way, he'd gotten mad at him. But we'll say this. We'll say they had gotten mad at each other, I think, because, if I remember correctly, at the time, 50 years before, Frank was like a teenager, and Dolly had gotten him a, you know, Francis, Francis Garrick, his godfather, was over a newspaper, and they got Frank a job at the newspaper, and somebody died, and so Frank went and sat in the person's chair and was doing all kinds of cookie stuff that they fired him. So, anyway, the death of his mother left him bereft, and... All of his parents' relatives were dead with the exception of a 90-year-old aunt in a nursing home. And there's no one left to connect with him, you know, his, with his mother and father except through Frank, Frank Garrick, his, um, his namesake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and actually, Frank Garrick was once his dad's best friend and the man Dolly had chosen to be the godfather. So the two had not spoken to each other since, and I wrote this down, since Garrick had fired Frank when his teenage godson tried to preempt a dead reporter's newspaper job. He just went and sat down at his desk and doing crazy things as a teenager. So for Christmas, they both received, uh, this is Frank Garrick and his wife, received Cartier tank watches, and any time Frank performed, 
at Carnegie Hall, they received free tickets for themselves and their friends. And the next year, Frank took them a painting he had done, and they hung it with pride alongside the picture of the Pope. So he made peace with his godfather after 50 years, which was cool. A few months later, on May 23, 1985, Reagan presented Frank with the nation's highest civilian award, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and some of his fellow recipients, people don't know, were Jimmy Stewart, Marine Explorer Jacques Cousteau. Do you guys know who Jacques Cousteau is? Know the name. Both of you? Wow. Also, do you know who Chuck Yeager is? Of course. Yeah, broke the sound barrier. Yep, there you go. And Mother Teresa. Never heard of her. <laughs> of course you never did. As a Catholic, you never heard of Mother ah. Teresa. Who had won that Nobel Prize for work among the poor of Calcutta. And on his 75th birthday, he kicked off a 75-city Diamond Jubilee World Tour, which I'm sure kind of sputtered along because, you know, he's 75 by this time. He was a hard worker. And in his later years, he continued to receive prestigious awards like the Grammy Legends Award. Did you see that when he received the Grammy Legends Award? I don't think I did, actually. It was pretty cool. Was it? Yeah, you can go and look it on on YouTube as well. He received a standing ovation when he accepted the Grammy Legends Award. And actually, he was teary-eyed Christian because, you know, he didn't like rock and roll. And uh, But the producers cut his speech. And Billy Joel took a stand when he stopped his performance of River of Dreams to waste commercial time saying, valuable advertising time going by dollars, dollars, dollars. That was to be in protest of them cutting off Frank Sinatra. By this time, he is older, and yeah. um, the only award he has never gotten is the induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm surprised by that. That's amazing. Well, it, it could be just because... He's a crooner, and then he hated rock and roll. I know, but... He well, should have been in, put into it. He should have Perry been. Como's not in there either. But, well... What do you think about that? I was shocked when I knew that Frank I'm Sinatra... I'm surprised by that. Was not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Frank Sinatra. He's the original rock star, like we said earlier. He was the original rock star. That isn't that incredible? He's not even being he's not even been nominated. Like this year, even though I love Stevie Nicks and I hope she gets in it. Yes. Stevie Nicks is nominated this year. And um I mean Journey. I mean everybody's been nominated into it. Aretha Franklin was the first woman. Um, but I'm just I thought he would be in like the first class along with Elvis Presley and um Sam Cooke and all that. He should be nominated. He's not nominated. Someday he should be. I know. I know. Megan, we got to go there. Oh. We just move in. <laughs> Let's do it. We should do a show there, a rockabye show so there. Fun. So in the 1990s, he started losing loved ones. Ava Gardner, his love, love of his life, died in January 1990 in London and was buried in North Carolina under a wreath that said, With my love, Francis. A few months later, in the same year, Sammy Davis Jr. died of throat cancer, wearing the gold Cartier watch Frank had given him. And they said a really bad day for Frank was on Christmas Day of 1995 when his pal Dean Martin died. And Frank did not attend the funeral because Barbara said the death of so many friends had taken its toll on him. But one bright spot came in the 1990s when he released his duets album. He scored his biggest musical coup in a decade with Frank Sinatra duets. Do you have that? Uh, Spotify. Spotify. Who's you? Do you have one favorite on that duets? 
I have one. I want to I'll talk it? about it. Mine is Aretha Franklin, What Now My Love. And I like the one he did with Luther Vandross. You have one? Can you think of one at the top of your head? You, you know why? Because you listen to him so much. Yeah, I mean, mine, mine is pretty much when I'm just home, when I'm cooking, Mike. I know. Like Frank, that's it. Do you de-stress? Because his voice is so, it's invigorating. Oh, it is. It's soothing. It's soothing. It is soothing. It's, it's invigorating. Same, it's, yeah, at the same time, it's soothing. It's powerful. It's. It is powerful. It's, and it's. It's overall just calming. It's just like here's a guy who clearly has lived a life. Yeah. We've gone through this. But, but his voice sounds amazing, yeah. even in those duets yeah. albums. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure that inspired Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga. Oh, for sure. I mean, come on. That and uh, Amy Winehouse. Yeah. And Amy Winehouse. Amy did it with. Actually, I heard that. Tony yeah, Bennett. it was Amy that inspired Lady Gaga to do it because oh, Amy did. Oh, she was very it. influenced by her. Yeah. Amy, we'll do that. We'll deal with Amy. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a, one for the ages, too. But anyway, Frank Sinatra Duets 1 was 1993, and Frank Sinatra Duets 2 was released in 1994 and had all these signature songs with U2 and Bono, Natalie Cole, Carly Simon, Barbara Streisand, Tony Bennett, Aretha Franklin, my favorite. Also recorded separately, matching their voices to his, which you know they were doing separately, right? Do you know that, Christian? So I didn't he know did that. it Mm-mm. in a studio out here, and then they did it wherever they did it. No kidding. They didn't do it in the same room. It's amazing, especially just because they have to be so on, on pitch together. Right. I think he sent a lot of his engineers, or the engineers went, who produced it, was um, um, went and did it. For each person, and I for my for my Aretha Franklin show, I'm just saying this is that when she did her duet, the producer said, "Why don't you tell Frank what he meant to you?" And she gave him a special message that she said, um, which was a lot of them did it because it was Frank Sinatra. Yeah, yeah. leading up you to know? his 80th birthday. Yeah, so both albums charted the Billboard charts and sold more than three. 0.7 million copies in the U.S. alone. The following year, Sinatra celebrated his 80th birthday at the Shrine Auditorium, watching Ray Charles, Little Richard, Natalie Cole, Salt Paper, sing his songs, but by then he was suffering from Alzheimer's. And so none of his kids or his grandchildren attended his 20th anniversary celebrating uh, his 1996 20th year that he had married Barbara when they renewed their wedding vows. And, in, and I want to say that Barbara didn't invite the kids or the grandkids to his 80th birthday. There was a big rift. In his later years, Frank suffered from small strokes. He had two heart attacks, pneumonia, cancer of the urethra, and dementia. And in his last days, Quincy Jones sat with him many afternoons sitting by his bedside. And even though Frank has like inspired like countless people, he loved listening to opera. He loved listening to Luciano Pavarotti. And toward the end, Quincy Jones said he spent many afternoons sitting by Frank's bedside. And in his autobiography, he recalled that once when Frank yelled at his nurse, he looked at Jones and said, Q, I'm a pain in the ass, right? <laughs> and Jones laughed back and said, right. Yes, you are. You've always been. But I still love you, you blue-eyed mother trucker. <laughs> And on May 14, 1998, uh, Francis Albert Sinatra, 82, was rushed to Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Las Vegas, Los Angeles, sorry, 
where he died of congestive heart failure at 10.50 p.m. with his only wife, Barbara, by his side. By the way, the children are saying she wouldn't let them come to him. The children said that... Is that like a he said, she said thing, though? Possibly, because they wouldn't speak to each other, and there was a lot of acrimony. A lot of acrimony. Still was. Um, but um, So the casinos in Las Vegas... Las Vegas stopped spending for a minute in tribute to Frank. And in New York City, the top of the Empire State Building went blue. And the Tower of Capitol Records in Hollywood at the time was draped in black. I'm still sad about the Capitol Records being, I mean, well, Capitol Records, yeah, was draped in black. His invitation-only funeral on May 20th, 1998, was attended by 400 people at the Good Shepherd Roman Catholic Church in Beverly Hills. By the way, I know because I was coming back from an interview. No kidding. That. It was packed. I mean, I, I couldn't get through Beverly Hills on Santa Monica. Nancy Reagan, Gregory Peck, Kirk Douglas, Dan Rickles, <coughs> Sophia Loren, Phil Donahue, Marlo Thomas, Milton Burrow, Bob Dylan, mm. who loved Frank Sinatra, Dionne Warwick, Quincy Jones, of course, Robert Wagner, Liza Minnelli, Jack Jones. I don't know who Jack Jones is, but Jack Lemon and Jack Nicholson filed into the church along with everybody else. He was buried next to his parents and his pal, Jilly Rizzo, in Palm Springs. Jilly was with him forever, like 30 or 40 years. And his headstone reads, The best is yet to come, Francis Albert Sinatra, 1915 to 1998, beloved husband and father. A few years before his death, he added a no-clause stipulation in his will, which meant that if anyone challenged his wishes, that he or she would forfeit forfeit any inheritance previously given in his living trust and all bequests in his new will. He also added a clause stipulation that only children born in wedlock and lawfully adopted children and issue of such children could inherit from him. And I want to say this is because at one point he was trying to adopt Barbara's son that she had had by maybe Zeppo. Mm-hmm. And his children had a cow. And they were like, uh, no, it's not going to happen. And he gave his daughter, Tina, um, rights to license his name. Um, and he had told her, don't, Tina, don't put it on mugs or whatever it was. But, you know, she did whatever she wanted. But I don't know, it was just a lot of acrimony between Barbara and the kids. And yeah. that's probably why he added that wheel. He took care of Barbara. He took very good care of her, but um, it just, yeah, it was kind of sad. It always gets messy at the end. Especially with money. Mm-hmm. And Frank Sinatra money. So for his 100th birthday on December 12th, night 2015, I was about to say 19, <laughs> the lights at the top of the Empire State Building turned blue to honor old blue eyes who made New York, New York, that city's anthem, and church bells tolled in Hoboken, New Jersey for him, and blackjack tables in Las Vegas paws. So the issue of paternity flared in 2013 when uh, Vanity Fair quoted Mia Farrow as saying that her son Ronan might have possibly been the biological son of Frank Sinatra and not Woody Allen. I remember that. Yeah, her partner partner at the time of his birth in 1987. And when Ronan Farrow was born, Sinatra was 72 years old and married to Barbara, who dismissed 
dismiss Mia as peddling junk. But that kid does look. He has blue eyes. Yeah. He doesn't look like no damn Woody Woody Harrell, Woody Allen Woody Harrell. Is this the margarita? It could be. <laughs> All right, never mind. I'll no, take a drink for that. There you go. No, that's crazy. I mean, but I mean, you guys have heard that rumor, right? Oh yeah, right? no, I yeah. remember when that was happening. That was. So you remember? Yeah, I was like, yes. Yeah, she said that her marriage to you know, although her marriage to Sinatra lasted only two years, she insisted that they never really split up, and I put that in quotes. Mm-hmm. And a photograph soon surfaced on the internet of Mia and Rodin, a Rhodes Scholar said to have the IQ of a genius, showing him with piercing blue eyes and slim like Sinatra in his youth. And the photo went viral and stirred thousands of internet responses, most of which found the resemblance unmistakable. Even Woody Allen, now married to Mia's adopted daughter, was struck by the similarity, said the young man he had considered his his and Mia's son for 26 years. Looks a lot like Frank with the blue eyes. Um, Ronan, who entered Bard College at 11, did you know how, how smart he was? No, but... So Ronan entered Bard College at 11 and graduated from Yale Law School at 21. Wow. Genius. Well, he's actually... Uh, yeah, I think he's, he's really high up there at NBC, is he not? Oh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, he's with one of the guys from Pod Save America, one of those guys that were Obama's... Um, what do you think, Megan? He looks like Frank. He, doesn't he look like Frank? Yeah. Oh, I like this picture. They did like a, a comparison. He looks more like Frank well, than he does Woody right. Allen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's Frank. I mean, you know when Woody Allen says he does look a lot like Frank with the blue eyes, but all Ronan would say is, "Look, listen, we're all we're all possibly Frank Sinatra's son." Tina Sinatra d- denied the possibility. Frank had a vasectomy before that. She told a reporter, "I don't know whose son Ronan is, but that's what you would say." Mm-hmm. You know, so Frank Sinatra, his son died, died on March 16, 2016 at 72 years old. Barbara died last July 2017 at 90 years old. And Nancy, his first wife, died only a few months ago, July 18, 2018, at 101 years old. She outlived Everybody. She did. I remember that. Because uh, after she passed, you know, Miss Knight, the satellite radio in my car, the Sinatra station, for anybody who else has it, it's Channel 72 on Sirius XM. But they did like a whole tribute. And it did was just, they? Oh, it was great. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind, of, know, it's kind of shocking they did it now because I'm hearing all this shit and it didn't even seem like he cared about her. But. I know, right? But he had those three kids. He did have those three kids. You know, and in a Playboy interview, Frank once said, when I sing, I believe I'm being honest. I don't know what other singers feel when they articulate lyrics, but being an 18-carat manic depressive and having lived a life of violent emotional contradiction, I have an over-acute capacity for sadness as well as elation. I know what the cat who wrote the song is trying to say, I've been there and back. I guess the audience feels it along with me. They can't help it. Sentimentality, after all, is an emotion common to all humanity. And Bono, remember I brought about the Grammy legends? Mm-hmm. He said, rock and roll people love Frank Sinatra 
because Frank has got what we want, swagger and attitude. He's big on attitude, serious attitude, bad attitude. Frank's the chairman of the bad. Rock and roll plays at being tough, but this guy, well, he's the boss, the boss of bosses. The man, the big bang of pop. I'm not going to mess with him, are you? Turning on the right phrase and the right song, which is where he lives, where he lets go, where he reveals himself. His songs are home, and he lets you in, but you know what to sing like that you've got. But you know that to sing like that, you've got to have lost a couple of fights. To know tenderness and romance, you've got to have had your heart broken. And that's how he introduced Frank Sinatra for that Grammy Legends Award when he was teared up. When he died, they buried him with a carton of camel cigarettes, (laughs) a roll of dimes to call his friends, and a bottle of Jack Daniels. He loved his Jack. He did. There's a special Sinatra Jack Daniels. Did not know that. Yeah, there's a special of Jack Daniels Sinatra. Hmm. And it has Sinatra Jack Daniels. That's cool. It is cool. I gotta find that. Yeah. That'd be a cool piece to have. Yeah, it is. They did. So I guess that's it. I, I hate ending it because. I by the way, I want to tell you and Megan have been the best. Oh, you got to come sure. back now. Oh, oh absolutely. Sure. I think now I got recurring co hosts, you know? Absolutely. And Mich- we'll get her her cracking on some of the stuff that she truly enjoys because you oh, start yeah. cracking. Oh, yeah. We got some good I stuff love coming up. Frank, but you, this yeah. was your. Yeah, she told me at work. You. She told me at work, this is Christian's thing. But you got to come back because. Oh, absolutely. We got a lot of good stuff coming up. We got a lot of good stuff coming up. Now that Megan's told yeah. me, I mean, we, you know, Michelle is still on hiatus with her. She's got some amazing stuff going on. But, you know, we got some good stuff coming it's up. All right. We'll just. With Megan and Christian. It's going to be good. It is. It's going to be good. More than happy. Do you want to tell who, we, who we're thinking about? Who we're thinking about? We're thinking about Aaliyah. Yes. Baby girl. We're thinking about baby girl and people. You said that Drake is a huge fan of Aaliyah. Yeah, both of them. A lot of a lot of people. Are. And you say he referenced Drake references he her. I think Rocket Man's gonna be good. Rocket Man is gonna be great. Yeah, Elton John. I even, love Elton John. Elton John's gonna be great, but we won't be doing a rockabies no, on him no. because. No, <laughs> no. I'm just saying. I know it. But as far as films, what was the other about music?